Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. So that must mean it's nine o'clock on a Friday night, Eastern time. I am, well, semantics, as you said in a previous Facebook message. Um, I am David, a.k.a. Vincent DB82, and this is a bonus episode of Gaming Sessions and Everything Under the Sun. My name is Miguel Montoya, and you killed my father. Prepare to die. Couldn't hear you. Sorry. I said, my name is Inigo Montoya, and you killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not the six-fingered man, so I can't help you with that. Uh, but we have a very special... Wife tells me. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but we, uh, we have a very special guest. His name is Evan. I actually met Evan, what was it, six years ago? Give or take, it's whenever the first Hunger Games movie came out. Because we just basically, I think we met either, I think we just started talking in the lobby or at the coffee shop outside the theater. Instantly got along and decided to sit next to each other when the movie started. Right, much much to the chagrin of my, uh, of my wife at the time. Because it was, uh, I wanted to come watch this movie by, by ourselves. And I was like, but he's cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember us getting along so well. I think for a little while she was worried that I was gay and hitting on you or something. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. no, it's just what if I get up, if I get along with somebody, I get along with them. It's I got that I was naturally born with that Irish attitude of if you're not an asshole and you like to drink, we'll get along just great. <laughs> well, I will uh drink to that like I've been doing for most of the day. Yeah, day drinking is a very important part of surviving quarantine. <laughs> mm, well, Fortunately, I'm a bartender. I think I could knock out a mule. And if what I mix doesn't, well, the Romulan ale I made definitely can. Funny story for off of podcast time. Mm, well, go ahead and, uh, and say that. This is a bonus episode, so there's really no specific format or oh. topic as of yet. Okay, it's not much of a story. Just about a week ago, we had a, had a small gathering at a friend's house. Uh, the only bartender I know to regularly make me lose time. And this was the first time where I caused him to lose time, because the Bromulan Ale, the recipe I picked, because, as you can imagine, with Star Trek being as big as it is, there's lots of different recipes for Romulan Ale. I picked the one that I figured was most likely to kill a rhino through alcohol poisoning. <laughs> so, mm. <laughs> and the end result was that sign I think, me up. Yeah, the end result was only me and I think two other people that were there at that apartment. Uh, not apartment, actually. He lives in his own little house, and he's barely left since this whole thing started. Uh, actually, remembers mm. anything about the night before. It's in fact uh, my friend Mike, the guy who regularly takes memories away from me, <laughs> actually woke up the next morning and asked me if, like, one of the one of the house guests that actually, like, had been there because it had, the alcohol affected him so much. And this is a dude who, like, literally used to spend his entire days drinking. It hit him so hard that he actually forgot he had a house guest. He forgot an entire human being that's a good friend of his. <laughs> so along the lines of a pan-galactic gargle blaster? I will need to get a lot of things together. I think I need to get a smoker before I can pull that off. Like the end result <laughs> of all this time at home is that I have turned a small portion of the kitchen into like 
a mini bar, and I don't mean that in the sense of like I have a little fridge for alcohol or something. No, no. I mean, I can bartend from home right now. <laughs> I can I can make some pretty good drinks. I make a mean mudslide, which I'm convinced, and by no actual intent to do so, will get me laid someday. That is all alcohol that tastes like pure chocolate. Like, <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. And and the best way to soothe the savage woman is chocolate. Chocolate and anything that goes in a martini glass, and it's both. Mm. I also Indeed. make a meat margarita. And I recently ordered a blender so I can make frozen margaritas in a week or two. Mm. I also know how Indeed. to cook. I'm as close as you can get to a perfect man. So what's the, uh, what's the inevitable deal breaker then? If you say you don't like my combo collection, you're out of it. <laughs> also i have a very strict rule nobody touches my laundry i swear to god i will dump a woman on the morning of our wedding day if she does my laundry <laughs> every i think every this is, this is a big secret to ladies everywhere every guy has that one house thing it's that thing you never have to worry about doing because we'll do it and we'll do it so hard we don't want anyone else near it so hard, like like so hard you'll feel it upstairs. Yeah, and mine is the laundry. No one touches my laundry. I don't care if you got a better way to do it. I don't care if you're trying to do it because you want to show how much you love me. You don't touch my laundry. <laughs> All right, ladies in the area. Um, we've got an eligible bachelor here. He can make a mean mudslide. He can cook. Just don't touch his fucking laundry. Yeah. And you'll y'all will be golden. And trust me, I at least have at least one good comic you'll love. Mm, but make sure that you... says, yeah. The song goes up to me, it's like, I have no interest in comics. I'm like, oh no, I still got something. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure you sanitize, wash, and pat dry with two towels before you touch it. And also remember no one borrows my sandman. No one. <laughs> Wait, say that again? Nobody borrows my Sandman. Ah, gotcha. When uh, DC Comics re-released that in Absolute Editions, which are by far some of the most gorgeous comics I own now, I instantly said no one's ever borrowing this. They, they went all out. Leather-bound cover, like one of those like uh, sheer white sheets you put in the front to protect like the re to protect the first page, basically. Complete recoloring, mm. like every special feature they could possibly track down for this thing. <laughs> All the bells and whistles. Pretty much, yeah. And as soon as I got the first volume, and these are all first editions that I own, I was like, yeah, no one's ever borrowing these. There's only a handful so, of comics in my collection that will anybody borrow, and they're, the, and they're it. So I assume they're in a double deadlocked vault that not even the current doctor could get out with two sonic screwdrivers and three psychic papers. If anything we've learned is that all you need is a Clara to get out of any place, but aside from that, <laughs> no, I wish I was rich enough for that, but no, it's just, no one ever borrows them. If you come to my apartment, I'll show them to you, I'll let you flip them around them, they will not leave the grounds, basically. <laughs> mm. Well, that's probably a smart thing, Yeah, because um, I made that mistake during my time in the Army when I was a avid uh, DVD collector, and it didn't matter if it was good or not. I bought it because 
my free time was pretty much spent watching movies. Yeah, there's a great episode uh, very recently of Brooklyn Nine-Nine where one of the main characters points out that he doesn't know anything about the movie Memento, but he keeps losing his memory, so he compares it to uh, Finding Dory because he's like, I was in Afghanistan when that movie came out. We got all family flicks. <laughs> As a result, he really loves like family flicks like Finding Dory. <laughs> Even though it's like, one of the more psychotic protagonists in the series. Indeed, I can, I can relate. We would, uh, well, it wasn't, wasn't so much. I think when we went to, um, God, what was it? Wasn't Camp Doha, because that's where we came in. God, I can't remember the name of the place, but there was, uh, like a like little small theaters where groups could watch DVDs and and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like just little uh, tent put up with like what probably to here in this you know to most civilians looks like just a normal like setup for entertainment, maybe slightly better than average, but to you guys, it's close to being got to a movie theater. <laughs> uh, if it, if we were at the Cabal's, yes, but at this place, it was. In buildings, yeah, with air conditioning, thank God. <laughs> Especially if it's a movie theater. Yes. Now, I I will say, um, I got to watch the first X Men. This is going back when I was when I was in Korea, and we did our three week uh, field exercise, and we got to visit. Um, Camp Boniface, which is right there on the DMZ. And we, I actually got to stand in the big, I guess you'd call like a conference room type building that's on both sides of the border. So you stand, you enter the door through South Korea, you walk halfway past the table, you're in North Korea, and then you're just standing there like North Korea, South Korea, <laughs> North Korea, South Korea. Oh, it's like the El Royale Hotel. <laughs> mm. uh, I would not recommend sleeping near the border, though, because the propaganda music they blare out <laughs> at you gave me some fucked up dreams. Oh, I can imagine. I think, I think it's hilarious how we always portray uh, other countries and all their propaganda, especially like the pro-this-country, anti-other-country propaganda and I think it's I think a lot of people will be amazed how much they look at that. I'm like, oh my god, it's so obvious propaganda. How can they miss it? But once you get exposed to enough of it and then you start looking at all our advertising and stuff like that, you're like, oh wait. <laughs> hmm. It's taking something from a commercial level and putting it on a governmental yeah. level. <laughs> it's just uh, with extra subliminal messaging. I don't know. I think uh, American propaganda is interesting because its nature and extremity varies dependent on basically who's in power and what their ultimate goals are. Like, who's like, I, I, the historian in me loves all the marketing and commercial stuff uh, from the 80s, especially how much of it was Hmm. like commercialization purposely designed to not look like commercialization, like every single cartoon we were raised on, which has basically existed just so that we would bug our parents until they bought us action figures and various other toys and devices. Well, but at the time, we just thought it was entertainment. Fun. 
funny you should mention that there was uh it might still be on netflix but there was a special about um toys yeah there's a and they, about the whole you talk about that uh documentary series the toys that made us yes i watched a few one. episodes of that it's a really good show yeah i watched the first episode about he-man and they had made the action figures first, and they had to scramble to create the show to sell yeah. them. I know every once in a while you do get a Lego movie kind of situation out of it. I mean, look at Transformers for God's sakes. Uh, for He-Man, I am I have zero interest to go back on that show for the same reason as an adult. I can't watch what's, um, what's new Scooby-Doo or any of those really, really, really old Scooby-Doo shows. I just can't watch them. I tried when I was 20, and I was like, I need to never watch another episode of old school Scooby-Doo again just to preserve the memory. <laughs> and I feel the same yeah. way about He-Man. Like, I feel like as an adult, I cannot rewatch those shows. I think anybody post-Batman the Animated Series can really look at those shows too well. But I am really looking forward to the new Netflix series that Kevin Smith is uh, heading up. That's basically an ending to the original He-Man. And that might be enough to get me to rewatch the original He-Man and just sort of like get over the obvious flaws of 80s children's television uh, so I can watch each episode and knowing that it's going to have this definitive ending down the line. <laughs> it turns oh, out Kevin Smith, you have me and, well, Kevin Smith got the job because apparently Netflix got the rights to He-Man. Uh, sadly, uh, after they start, already started production, I guess, on the season of Shiro, because those rights are separate. And I'm sure they would have loved to have happily tied things together if they were able to get the rights sooner. And they were just looking for somebody to start He-Man up again for their version. And Kevin Smith was just one of the guys they talked to. And Kevin Smith, who's been trying to do things for Netflix for years, all of his own fronts, constantly getting rejected. He's very quick to point out that, no, it's not as easy to get a Netflix series made as you might think. Uh, but he said, but they did contact hmm. him, and he surprised them because it turns out he is a hardcore like scholar of the entire mythology of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, and he sold them hmm. on this idea of how we always see Skeletor with our rose-tinted uh, nostalgia goggles as being one of the great villains of the '80s, even though like most '80s TV cartoon villains, he's really kind of just a bungling idiot. <laughs> like, he never gets a victory. And he's like, I, wanted, I want to tell the story about what happens when Skeletor actually does win, when he does. And, and, that's, and he's basically proposed it as the last He-Man story, where it's like, finally, <clears throat> the thing they spent every episode of the original series trying to prevent from happen happens, and they, it's going to lead to a finally all-or-nothing final battle between He-Man and Skeletor. So it's literally the end of that saga because he always wanted to see that. It's like, I was something that as a fan and comic book geeks like us can definitely get behind this always bugged him that you have this great storyline that's kind of easy to end. Like, let's get rid of this one villain. Your story is over and it never ends and you just wanted to see an ending and that was it. Yeah, yeah. And as as someone who's listened to his fat man on batman podcasts um and seen most of his movies same um i said uh, same hmm? same lane yeah oh same yeah um i would say he's definitely yeah. the nerd to do well it. especially i think his uh him in general when it comes to his creative stuff be it movies or otherwise i think it works better when he's 
working with characters he grew up with and really loved when he was younger than he does with usually his own stuff. Because uh, if you ever read his Green Arrow or his Daredevil, those are so amazing, it's almost hard to believe he wrote them. <laughs> no offense to him or anything, mm. but it's just like there, there's only hints or little in-jokes that indicate that it's him if you're just looking at the writing in and of itself instead of looking in the background. And he actually wrote what is, in my opinion, one of the best Batman stories ever made. Uh, not his miniseries. His Batman stories in general are you could skip those, but <laughs> but he did. He was one of the people they asked to do like a little eight ten page story for the Detective Comics number one thousand, and I was genuinely surprised when I found out that out of all the stories in there, his was, in my opinion, the best. And it's this really beautiful, heart wrenching story. Um, that's I think the best way I could put it without uh, spoiling it. It's the origin of the armor he puts over his chest so that he doesn't have to worry about getting a mortal blow there. And it's the kind of thing, hmm. it's like, just like I said with Daredevil and Green Arrow, it's so wonderfully poetic uh, that you almost wouldn't believe that he had anything to do with it at all once you read it. Maybe even... Well, when the, when the when the average person who knows of Kevin Smith knows about him because of Jay and Silent Bob... And the whole running weed, dick, and fart jokes thing. I suppose I could understand that if you read something that's poetic and actually makes you feel your own feels. Yeah, well, I think I could see that. There's a reason why my favorite Kevin Smith movie is uh, Chasing Amy, even though a lot of people hate on it now because they, I feel like they're both ignoring the time period it was made in, how little entertainment or representation like homosexual people actually had in the 90s too and completely missed the point that unlike a lot of stories of that type in that era kevin smith wasn't going hey look at ben affleck's character isn't he great it's about ben affleck basically the whole movie could be summed up as ben affleck realizes he's the asshole <laughs> it's about how toxic hmm. guys like that are and why they don't see themselves as toxic and you know how uh how they actually cause serious harm to others if they don't learn that lesson. And yeah, that was like the last, I mean, you know, a lot of people call it that movie where a lesbian falls for a guy, which I still am like, she is not a lesbian. She's just a bisexual woman who for, uh, I, cause you've seen Chase and Amy, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think you agree with me when you say you do not blame that woman for just giving up on men entirely considering her experiences. <laughs> and, Holden was like Holden yeah. was the last straw, but yeah. based on her experiences, it's I'm yeah. not saying I'm one of those guys who thinks that all guys are assholes, even me or something like that. Uh, but I'm just saying, if I put myself in her shoes, like I said, I don't blame her for deciding men is out, especially during that time period. It's very easy to blame, and I'm really happy. That in James Bond Bob <laughs> reboot, uh, which if you haven't watched that yet, if you got an Amazon Prime account, it's on there. Uh, where they actually do an epilogue to that. Oh. Where it's, uh, yeah, it's they have a kid mm. together. And I like how first it's like, it's like, oh my God, you guys got married? She hates you that kid. He's like, hell no. Didn't you just see us interacting with each other? Married people don't get along. No, we're co-parenting. Like, she's with, she's got a wife. They're happy together. She's my mm. best friend. And when they decide they want to have a kid, they ask me to provide the genetic, the genetic material. And you know what? I'm kind of happy being a dad. <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> I'll have to uh, ask the <laughs> wife for her uh, Amazon. Oh, I, actually, it's a surprisingly heartwarming movie. And it's kind of the kind of movie I don't think he could have made any sooner since, um, you know, now Jay Muse himself has a kid. And like uh, there's with him still being Jay of oh, Jay Silent Bob, I kind of there's no I think there's no denying when you watch it that there's a lot of that uh, his experiences as a parent for a young kid now is being put into that performance. And I think Kevin Smith even wrote it somewhat into the story as well as his own personal experiences with raising Harley Quinn for like 20 years, give or take. <laughs> hmm. Actually, since you mentioned her, I think I found a movie at the dollar store. And by dollar store, I mean Dollar Tree. And it was <laughs> called Yoga Hosers. It's, it starred her. And it starred yep. Johnny Depp's daughter. And Kevin Smith wrote and directed it, and Johnny Depp is in it reprising a character from uh, Tusk. I haven't watched it yet, uh, partially because from what everybody told me, it's absolutely horrible. But I don't consider that a point against it, because as Kevin, uh, Kevin Smith said, that he, he wrote that for his inner 11-year-old girl. <laughs> and if he said, if anybody who fits that sort hmm. of like um, mark, uh, that demographic likes the movie he said if just one does it if just one likes that like likes it then he says i feel like it did my job and apparently he's had several in that demographic that had come up to him and said they love the movie because you're you're not supposed to really necessarily enjoy it as an intelligent adult or even a not so intelligent adult that's something i think too many people uh kind of miss today with a lot of the interactions and geekdom and all that is uh it's just because you personally don't like it doesn't mean it's bad, nor is it necessarily okay to ruin someone else's good time just because it's speaking to the audience that it's actually meant for. Oh, that's... Uh, yeah, I know. That, I mean, I mean, that could be said for... Oh, that could be said for damn or anything, but it's just, I feel like it's Not particularly bad now. Part of it is, because uh, you and I are around, I think you're only a year or two younger than me, if I remember correctly. So, yeah. Okay, yeah, we're about the same I'm age. 38. Uh, so, because I'm 38, too. We are the same age. What am I talking about? <laughs> but, I mean, we remember the good old days where, <laughs> yeah, we were doing exactly the same kind of, like, shit-talking you're seeing online all the time, except the difference is we did it in the comic book shop to somebody's face. And... I feel like a lot of the, especially the more mm. toxic geeks, and I don't give a shit what you, what, what your opinion is politically, social, or any other stuff. Uh, I've seen the toxicity from everywhere. So toxic is a very broad term here. It's more. No, wait, do you, no! are you saying Dude, me God specifically no. or are you just you're, saying you're one of those people who disagree <laughs> and not being it and not be an asshole. Like if we disagree about something, we debate. Versus too many people where if you disagree with them online, they want to argue with you, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's, I've actually, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah oh, that's what I mean when oh, I'm talking God. about toxic. And like I said, Ugh. I had to do It's, there's a reason also I had been telling people for a while now, if you throw me into like a room full of conservatives, they'll claim I'm a liberal, throw me into a room full of liberals. They'll claim I'm a conservative because I'm just going to speak the truth as best I know it and back it up with the facts. And the truth and truth and facts are not on anybody's side. They're just telling you like it is. Um, 
but what I was well the the truth is the the truth is the true true yeah. neutral. It doesn't care what part of the alignment exactly. grid you're on. It just and is. honestly, for somebody who is regularly keeping yourself informed and letting any opinions or analysis of the situation be based off of the information that you gain, hopefully without bias, then that's what you're actually in the end going to be. And you're you're never ever going to agree with anybody individually or as a group 100% of the time. And if you are dealing with a truly open uh, group, those who like who basically I would not describe as toxic, like even no matter how much they disagree with you, they're going to understand that and work with that to the point where you get what is my opinion, the best way to disagree with somebody where after a long, possibly even heated discussion at the end, you just be like, we're running around in circles. So we're just going to agree to disagree, which is not a bad way to end a disagreement. Hmm. As a, a civil person would, yeah. would agree with that myself included. But then talk you get those shitsters that are like, well, yeah, talk to people, shitsters, edgelords, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they're like, oh, you can't come up with a comeback. And <laughs> I'm going to strut like a pigeon who knocked over the king on the chessboard and shit on you the know, chessboard. You know, I have Woo. perfected the art of simultaneously making a point and making a comeback at the same time when they say that to me. Meanwhile, they just repeat the same things. Like, there was one <laughs> horrible argument going back into that whole, uh, it doesn't matter what side you're on. These were people getting mad at me because they claimed I was, uh, because of my response to a meme that had nothing to do with disabled people, they claimed I was picking on disabled people. <laughs> and when every point I made, they weren't able to actually really, truly dispute it. They could just keep attacking me, insulting me over and over again. They decided they won because one guy just posted pictures of animals defecating and saying, that's that's you. That's you. You're embarrassing yourself. See, that's you. And I'm like, you're not making a point. This is the best you can do. I've won. <laughs> the fact that you've been reduced <laughs> to this means I have successfully gotten under your skin and this is all you have. So, <laughs> And like you're saying, civil people mm. don't need to resort to that, no matter how how upset at the disagreement they get. I mean, I've lost my fair share of like debates and arguments or whatever, but I know how to, I know it's better to just treat it like losing a friggin' like football game or something. If you're not an asshole, you're going to shake the hand of the, of the person who beat you in that one. And then, and you know, if you're, and probably what you're going to you do. Might also kick his shin. Yeah, but if you do, it's going to be uh, like, you know, a bar fight situation. You're fighting each other one moment. As soon as you each got in your black eye and lost a tooth, you're all of a sudden singing shanties together while over a couple of fights. You know, that's like I said, very Irish. That's the kind of thing to do it for me. But I mean, if you're, I mean, honestly, the most asshole ish you should be mm. if you're a decent human being in my mind is shaking the other person's hand and saying, I'll beat you next time. And that person, whose chances are he's had a loss or two himself. Or themselves, you might be a woman, who knows, uh, or what have you. And you know, we'll shake your hand too. Be like, you know, maybe you will next time. Hmm. We'll see. You know, is it? Hmm. It's like that song from our senior um, year said: "The race is long, and in the end, it's only with yourself." <laughs> hmm. I think I, I would hope at least the most immature that I would get if I was to lose an, an argument and I've lost more than my fair share is uh, I would say no you 
Yeah. Like, I know you are, but what am I? We've all had those incredibly, like, immature moments. There's a reason why if I built a time machine, probably one of the first things I'll do is go back to 2001 and punch 19-year-old me, because I can't stand that guy. (laughs) 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 It's like, that's... It's really the kind of the thing I hate this mo- the most about no. the current 21st century, where if someone really doesn't like you or doesn't like something you said for whatever reason, they'll go through your history on the internet and find the most ignorant thing you said and try to bring it up to the 21st century and get everybody to completely ignore all of your growth since then. Because let's be honest, the person you are today is not the person you are a week ago, let alone like. 10, 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> right. Case in point, Kevin, was it Kevin Smith was supposed to host the Oscars, uh, no, but someone that found was, that, uh, uh, that. Kevin something. Yeah, it was Kevin Hart. Not Kevin Smith, uh, Kevin Hart. My go-to example, I think, though this is a question of it ultimately working out the way it should have, though it didn't go the path to that it should have. James Gunn, director of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, where uh, that oh he God, wrote those really he was, horrible, uh, I think, homophobic or something, or various. Well, actually, it was a series of like really politically incorrect tweets from way back in like 2010, 2011. And it's one of those things you don't even have to look that deep to find out that he denounced those things before he even got the um, the Marvel job, you know, doing Guardians of the Galaxy movies. But but mm. a whole but a lot of people brought it up because right. they didn't agree with his politics and he was using Twitter and had, you know, a hell of a following on Twitter, being the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> but being director of like literally two of the best Marvel right. movies, which and... is hands down the best franchise for right now, <laughs> you know, and uh... Uh, and I would I would agree with you on that. Um, in fact. The wife upstairs loves Guardians of the Galaxy, and she refuses to watch the Infinity War uh, set of movies because she seems to think that Rocket gets killed. Spoiler, for though I think for the most of the world it's not, Rocket is is the only member of the Guardians of the Galaxy who doesn't get killed at the end of Infinity War. Yeah, and I've tried to repeatedly tell her that, but and she's just like, la 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 la, can't hear you, la la la, Rocket must live. <laughs> He's actually a fairly important part yeah. of, of Avengers Endgame. Uh, yeah, and um, but anyways, so another one I want, I want to bring up of that, and uh, on the actual podcast podcast, it, I think it was in season one, we talked about cancel culture. Uh, do you remember the story of the guy at the football game who held up a sign saying, oh, yeah. give me beer money, mm-hmm. my Venmo is this, and like he got like thousands of dollars and then he was going to uh, donate it to a children's hospital or something, but then did. some... And then somebody else did something. I forgot what. But I, I, it's been a while. Yeah, I and, know the whole story. I'm, I'm, what I got of it, someone tried to make him look like far more of an asshole than he actually did. For a day or two, it actually seemed to work. But, you know, people actually did look into it, found out that he did actually stay true to his word, 
And I think even uh, Budweiser or whatever it was, company was his favorite beer. So not only did we match the donation, but we also gave him like a year's supply of our product or something like that. So thankfully, that's the that's an attempt to cancel somebody that ended yeah, but... in a good person being rewarded for being a good person. <laughs> I wish that now the way I heard it was. And I could well, be I wrong. You could be right. So I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. So he he did the thing. He got the money. His favorite beer company gave him a a year supply, and then and I'm going to use this this uh, this term. It might be a little politically in uh, incitory, or I'm I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for, uh, but a woke scold found something in his Twitter history and was like, oh, you know, that guy that did that nice thing? Well, look at this yeah. thing that he did like five years ago. We, we <laughs> yeah, should cancel that's what I saw. And then immediately and then immediately that uh, the beer company pulled that, pulled that shit out like uh, a magician swiping the tablecloth out. And it, no, like it all said, that went to day. Uh, basically, what brought it to an end is that the guy actually handled the situation like a responsible human being, as opposed to, you know, like an internet, like a YouTube celebrity or personality or something like that, where even when they're being sincere, you can tell that they are <laughs> purposely like calculating their words and tone, <laughs> you know, so that they're saying, I'm not the person I was, regardless of whether or not <laughs> that's actually true. Uh, but him being just a guy who clearly had zero interest in fame before all this happened, just said, yeah, I posted those because I was an asshole back then. I honestly don't like the kind of person I was back then. <laughs> and I'm like, mm. so ultimately, it just all worked out for the guy in the end. And yeah, things like that is just stupid. Well, good to know that tentatively it all did work out in the end for him because when I had heard it, you know, back then, I was thinking about how much bullshit that was, and so if it did work out good, then that's why I never heard of that again. Because like, that only keeps so, coming up over and over and over again. If it like, if it usually if the counseling more or less succeeds, like how we're still talking about Kevin Spacey, even though that hasn't been in the news forever, because oh. What what the fuck was it that he, what did he, no, he had like a traffic no. accident Kevin, or something? Yeah, or no, it was a child molestation. He has a long history, apparently, of being sexually abusive to young men, especially in Hollywood. And it came out because of the uh, the one dude. His fame. He's most famous for Rent, but he's currently one of the main cast of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, came out about it. And that allowed other people to come out about it, about their experiences with him. And it eventually got to a point where it's like. Uh, it let's just say if it's not true, of a lot of coincidences. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he faced any legal repercussions or anything about it, but he instantly became just toxic. And yeah, I that's when I think went the way it should. I it sucks because I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of Kevin Spacey, the actor. And there are certain, like, movies and things he's done that, like, it's difficult to go back and watch. Fortunately, Kevin Spacey's a guy who had a tendency to play, like, the worst of assholes in television. 
So it's in a lot of ways it almost enhances. Like I mm. uh, a couple of few weeks ago, I rewatched Seven for the first time in years, and it's like it actually is easier for that movie to go down, knowing that what he was mm. knowing what he most likely was doing during that period of his of his life and career behind the scenes, uh, because. But it's just, um, yeah, it, it's really sucks. I think the problem is, uh, and this is a part of where cancer culture comes, uh, cancer, cancel culture comes from, is that we have a strong need to believe that the people we admire mm. and who created things that we love are genuinely good people, which usually translates to beliefs, what I believe the same way I believe it. In reality, they're just people. <laughs> and... I have yet to meet anybody who's who's been mm. so good and pure that you can't find a time in their life where they weren't an asshole. And the scare and really what we the question is, are you dealing with the the buy me beer money guy who was an asshole for a brief period, but long before anybody knew who he was, he already figured that out, made the actual genuine like self uh he worked to better himself and learn from his experiences and was, and became better as a person. Are you dealing with the James Woods who has clearly always been doing horrible things his entire life, but because he keeps getting rewarded for it, thinks it's okay. And you're just the asshole for bringing it up. (laughs) (laughs) That, that's Hmm. See, (laughs) funny. You should mention James Woods. Um, He, uh, he recently came back to Twitter. I can only imagine. (laughs) well um and you know i'm one thing i wanted to bring up when we were talking about this is i'm i'm a fence sitter when it comes to politics like i think either side has some good ideas but on the whole (laughs) both sides I, i feel like the it does to me go to what is a general mistake i think people make about politics which is they keep assuming it's just two sides. <laughs> it, it, that's so far off the base, in my opinion, from what politics actually is. I think people forget politics is not a term specific only to, like, the U.S., for starters. Like, politics is a very broad term. I well, do get, I, mean, I know in yeah. this case you're talking specifically about U.S. politics, and even then I'm like, no, there are two sides. Like, Okay, we're con- right. we've been convinced yeah. for way too long. I mean, one people forget that we keep saying two party system, but we actually don't have a two party system. We never did. The um, political system in America is designed so that you can create a party, and if it's popular enough, it'll be considered. You know, it's basically the people determine whether or not that party is going to continue. Much in the same way that if like you make a book, you don't determine whether or not that book is a success. The audience does. That's why some of the best books you ever read, nobody's ever heard about. And meanwhile, Twilight becomes a phenomenon. I mean, <laughs> and politics. Yeah. Uh, don't get me started on that travesty. Oh, I know. And the travesty uh, that followed like, after like, that. I like to focus on the good. As Twilight being a phenomenon created a golden age of YA novels. Thank freaking God. So we can leave that in the dust. So, <laughs> mm. um, but. All right. Uh, yeah. Keep talking. Uh, I'm going to go silent is, like, for a second. Forget, like Republicans and Democrats. It's not even how our politics started. It started with Whigs and something else, and then they kind of slowly changed and morphed and all that other stuff. But no, we don't actually have a two-party system. We have as as many parties as we can put on the ballot. It's just at some point, two parties uh, 
rose above all the others and everybody acts like you got to do one or the other because the only way you're going to get the most is if you go with one or the other. And I'm just like, I'm convinced within our lifetime, someone we describe now as independent, which is a stupid term in my opinion, but whatever, unaffiliated works much better, is going to, if not have somebody in the White House, they are definitely going to have enough of a good of a go that the idea of picking a non-Democrat or non-Republican is going to stop being like a pipe dream and start being a, an actual reality, basically. Well, I, uh, for the first time since I turned 18, finally registered to vote, and I, I don't blame set you. myself I as unaffiliated. since 18, so. but I didn't vote for the first time until I was 26. And, um, and it's just because the first two elections, like, uh, I remember 2000, it was Bush versus Gore, and I'm just like, my choices are frat boy and a robot. <laughs> and then uh, when 2004 hmm. came along, that election, my, you know, it was, I believe it was John Kerry that Bush was running against. So I'm just like, so, so my choices are a frat yes. boy that's been president for four years and a guy who reminds me of Smiler from Transmetropolitan. <laughs> okay, you might have to explain uh, that. That is a Warren Ellis comic, which I think, think I know you would absolutely love. It's that perfect mix of, it's a uh, Warren Ellis basically writing about, definitely American politics is what he's doing a lot of, but general, but politics in general and basically why it sucks and how we get screwed over at the main character being a very Hunter S. Thompson style, uh, Gonzo, yeah, Gonzo journalist. Um, oh and it all takes place <laughs> at a non nondescript point in the future. It's like so far in the future that we have that everything can be cured pretty much instantly. Like smoking is common because all you have to do is just take some anti-cancer pills once you like start to develop a tumor and you'll have baby pink lungs again. That sort of a thing. And it's all about... It really is just like them, him using science fiction to be like, that's why politics works. And the big villain was this character called the Smiler, which is a nickname Spider-Jerusalem gives uh, one of the guys running for president in the early parts of the comic because he smiles all the time to the point where anybody with half a brain should be able to tell this dude is not even remotely sincere and is in fact actually actively hiding his genuinely psychotic <laughs> nature. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And... Ah. So that makes me think of a... Uh, as a child, no. back in those Stranger Danger days, my dad would call the, you know, the random pedophile that would try to snatch up off the street, he would call him Mr. Teeth because the guy would probably be yeah. smiling at you. I mean, I find it funny how it's universally believed uh, and known, actually, that the biggest monsters aren't going to even remotely, in any way, shape, or form, come across as a monster, but large groups of people want to rally behind I feel like something like uh, the example that's popping into my mind. Well, I'm sorry, this went super political, but I think I'm do doing a pretty good job of showing myself as neutral, at least. Uh, in this case, uh, the example comes to mind was that whole thing about bathrooms saying, oh, we're going to not acknowledge transgender persons. So if you are not 
and by what we define as a woman, you should not be in a woman's bathroom and stuff like that. And the argument they used was, you know, this way we don't have to worry about kids being like grabbed and molested or raped by these like by these horrible miscreants and deviants. And I'm just like, dude, anybody. This was this is what I went through my head whenever I heard somebody bring that argument up was just like, how many episodes of Law and Order SVU did you watch where it was like a cross dressing dude that was grabbing a kid in the bathroom? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> like I said, the monster doesn't look like a monster. He's more likely to look like a 1950s suburban dad than he is like, you know, a woman with an Adam's apple. Let's think about it, people, <laughs> you know. Yeah, mm, it's like, yeah, well, yeah, I think it's, to me, a lot of these things, a lot of the complications that come from them are people trying to find simple answers and solutions to things that are really just incredibly complex because they want to lie and convince themselves that they understand the world far, far better than anybody actually could. You know, like, I know. Oh, go ahead. Well, to be to be fair, I don't think anyone, no matter how street smart, book smart, whatever kind of smart you are, will ever 100% understand the world. The world is a living, breathing, evolving. I don't think it's an evil organism. Evil but then again, organism. It comes to a guy actually doesn't believe in good and evil. I could definitely see where that comes from, though. Uh, and it's, well, I mean, it's like, uh, mm. go for the broadest of example, and I'm. Still bug. I still count this guy as a friend, though he makes it very difficult at times. Uh, and in his defense, a lot of uh, his beliefs that I don't agree with come from him being an older gentleman and having had those beliefs so long and so ingrained into who he is and his lifestyle that it, it, there, you have to do something like Inception to be able to get him out of him by now. But he, uh, we have. Oh, is it, is it that guy I think you're talking about? Like his Facebook yeah, yeah, profile? Yeah. He's, he's actually a really the, cool uh, guy in person, but it's, you kind of don't ever want to talk social issues or politics with him. And it's not even necessarily to disagree with him. It's that he never really thinks what he says or believes through. Just like equally, uh, I laughed when I put up the thing about the importance of doing your research before you like say something. And he put up the thing about how the media has to do that. And I'm immediately flashing to every single thing he posted up that a simple Google search would prove wrong, but he still posted it up because he thinks it proves him right. <laughs> it's uh, Yeah, and I'm purposely not going to say his name on the show because I don't, I'm not, I, I don't believe, one, I don't need to do that to make a point, nor does he need to have a whole bunch of strangers who don't know anything about him and are probably going to get on him to do that. Like, especially since you'd be surprised with the things that you would agree with him on. Um, but in that case, we actually had a talk once, and he's basically a guy with such a low opinion of women that I even would go so far to say I might actually have to just call him misogynist. Needless to say, he's a divorcee. <laughs> but his his view. Well, just mm. let me just give me a second here. Well, like his views of women, though, he's one of those know. people who seems to talk about women like mm. they're this completely different species or something like that and i'm kind of just waiting for people like him to figure out what i figured out way back in my 20s and it's not just about women this is about any group of people which is at the end of the day it's a large group of individuals that just happen and they may not even necessarily have a choice in it in case of gender you definitely don't they just happen to have something in common 
but they're still individuals. And to decide that because they're all a part of this group, all these things that have nothing to do with that unifying factor also apply to them, well, you're just setting yourself up for failure from the get-go when you do that. And that... Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and in, in, in terms of divorce, that makes either side of the party yeah. a Especially bitter if it's a asshole. bad divorce. Needless to say, he's, he's one of those guys also who's got daddy's little Especially. girl for his daughter and would probably kill the world for his, grand, for his granddaughters. So that's why I'm reluctant to call him necessarily a misogynist, but he's definitely got a view of women that's, like I said, is based way too much on his own personal experience and complete ignorance to the experiences of others, especially the women that he has those opinions about. And yeah, like, go ahead. Mm. And, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, of a segue <laughs> and it's not the scooter like, that you ride. Like your house too, huh? That dude, so white and nerdy. <laughs> uh, no, no, we don't. We don't have. Well, you know, um, they see me rolling d twenties. They hating because you know my my initiative is stronger than theirs. But when you, you know. say it like that, it just reminds me how I would really like to uh, play um, D and D with the girl from Daredevil. Anyway, uh, the one who plays Karen, uh, Deborah Ann Wall. Which girl? The Netflix Daredevil. Which Daredevil? She's actually a really. She's a really huge hardcore D and D geek. Like so, right now, her current project is she's actually doing regular series where she gets a whole bunch of like celebrities and thus does D and D sessions with them. You're talking about the the girl who was Daredevil's girlfriend, or no, no, no? Yeah, no, I'm not thinking, I'm thinking uh, Iron Fist. In Daredevil, blonde haired girl originally in True Blood. In my opinion, one of the most gorgeous women working in entertainment. Today. Oh wait, the uh, yeah, who winds up dead on girlfriend? Legal assistance, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh yeah, well, apparently oh, aside from she'd like, be fun actually, to play like D and D is pretty much her <laughs> life. It's like her and Vin Diesel, <laughs> like the most hardcore D and D fans you can find anywhere. <laughs> like, oh, and um, Joe Man Mangeliano, the, the yeah, guy who married um. What's her, what's her name? Ah, I hate the camera. Now, I'm trying to remember her name, and I'm mad I can't. Also, Bless speaking you. of one of the most gorgeous women out there today, and apparently well, he no. is such a hardcore nerd for D&D &D that he even turned her onto D&D, &D, and now she's a hardcore nerd for D&D. &D, so they are probably the most beautiful couple out there playing D&D &D all the time. <laughs> well, I, I heard the name, no, but okay. in my head it sounded well, I, like you I'm were sneezing, and that's why I said bless you. It's Victoria something, but I don't think it is. You know who I'm talking about, though, right? Uh, it's the woman who plays Ed O'Neill's wife on Modern Family. No. Sophia Vagata. Yeah, and she's married to Joe Mangialiano. So, yeah, you know, Sophia Vagata. Yeah. Blood. And yeah, he is a huge freaking D&D &D nerd, too. He's actually got a promotion going on right now where he's inviting people to play D&D &D with him for, like, charity or something. Which, I, that's something I love, is hmm. that we... we 
we are we are now getting the hot ones. Like Henry Cavill has so much like is so high right now with uh, how people have like has so much love for people because it turns out when he's not in a movie playing the coolest guy ever, he's just the biggest nerd. He's been spending this quarantine just basically taking the time to paint his Warhammer figures. <laughs> and he literally turned out high-profile projects so yeah. he could play Geralt um, in The Witcher because so... he's a huge fan of the game. He almost didn't get to play Superman because I think he was playing Dragon Age Origins or something like that. Oh. He was annoyed that the casting people like interrupted his game. <laughs> Oh, um, we've, in our first season of this podcast, we covered The Witcher. We fucking love, I fucking love The Witcher. In fact, I've seen Henry Cavill play Superman, I saw him play but Superman I love him better as Geralt. Of Justice League. <laughs> but I don't blame him. Uh, I, like, I love him as Geralt, too. I Actually, even when he was Superman, I thought he was a really good actor. I just felt really bad that I felt like he only got to play Superman in moments. Like, like I, like the climax of Justice League was when he, I felt like he was finally really acting like Superman. And aside from that, uh, the only times where I really bought the performance, and to make it clear, I never thought it was his performance that was the problem. It was the material he had to work with. Uh, before that, the only things that he did where I'm like, yeah, that Superman is when he's flying for the first mm. time in Man of Steel, which is my favorite scene from that movie, and everybody forgets about it. Where he, It's the only time in that movie where I feel like you really see him smile. He's like, holy crap, I can fly. And he's got this huge childlike grin on his face. And that scene... Now that's that's when he, that's when he leaves, leaves the, the, of Solitude for the, first the oil derrick in the ocean, for right? The first time. And it's him jumping in the Arctic as he's trying to figure out the whole flying uh, thing. And once he does, he's got this huge grin on his face that I love. Because Superman should be smiling every chance he gets. Because <laughs> like, he's just that kind of a guy. Yeah, he's an always yeah. look on the bright side of life kind of a guy. Right. Uh, the other time is just the, the one good like Lois and Clark scene in Batman v Superman where he comes home. And this is one of the things I... I despise that movie it's horrible but this one of the things i like about it uh which is that i like that lois and clark live in a very cheap looking small apartment like they should like they always should have been living in since find a reporter that can actually afford a decent place to live right and well i'm sure they work oh, for they washington post new york I mean, times I imagine or they live, something they something, have a nicer apartment yeah. than what you see in there but they're probably still living in an apartment you know <laughs> or at the very least they're just living in like a modest house like the ones you would hmm. see just outside of downtown around here or something you just you don't get into, yeah you, you don't get into writing for the money i know a lot of yeah. people think yeah. that everybody's rich like stephen king but let's be honest stephen king's rich because they keep making movies and tv shows and stuff out of his books not because of the sales from the books. The yeah, the sales from the books allow him to make a living, so he doesn't need mm, all those marketing yeah. deals in theory. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just uh, to anybody listening mm. who wants to be a writer, they're yeah. not rich and, because uh, they wrote books. They're rich because they sold the rights to those books. <laughs> Film rights, TV rights, you name it. <laughs> and. And I, I'm trying to remember. I think it was Rick Reardon. I had uh, I was reading an interview of 
fun. It was an interview of an author who had sold the rights to Hollywood, and they had said the best way to do that is to just <laughs> well, throw Reardon's the book towards case, California and run the other way. Was never had to worry of financially once he decided I was going to do it with him because his his entire publishing was done through Disney's book publishing company. So he was always in bed with Disney from the get-go. And mm. that meant that uh, my guess is, yeah, oh, no. Like, it got his book out there. And that my guess is the trade-off was that, hey, we're going to pay you so much more money, especially in advance for these series of books we think will do really, really well than most people will, especially if you're not already a well-known author. And, but in exchange for all that, basically – from the writer's point of view, first-time writers, you are getting far more money from them than you would from any other publisher. From the studio's point of view, they are pre-buying before everybody else is try- getting their claws into you and trying to talk and trying to bid for you the film rights or the TV rights or the audiobook rights and all that other stuff. So it's so you, the author, make more money. They, the business, spend less money. Mm. So in a way, it's a win-win situation. And if all you want to do is just write your books and get them out there so people can read them, that's not the worst deal ever. I mean, if you are one of those people who is more like me, and I, I'm assuming you are too, where you actually do have a passion for the things you create and how they will be handled by other businesses and other mediums they'll go in, that's a different story. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I have... But I, I, I can easily see myself Put it like, taking a deal like <laughs> something similar to that from Disney just to get my first book out there and purposely making it so it's something I only, uh, I'm not I'm proud of, but either have don't have don't doesn't have that special place in my heart, or if it does, only the novel would have that special place in my heart, and I won't care about how it's changed or altered in any other respect then in that case, I'll happily take that just to get that first paycheck so that I never have people holding a paycheck over my head again to force me into doing something I don't want to do. Uh, it's uh, one of the best pieces of advice of working in entertainment I got mm. from the co- uh, one of the commentary tracks for, I think it was uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where Joss Whedon said that one of the first pieces he, of advice he got when he started getting into screenwriting mm. was that someone up to him and, uh, after he got his first paycheck which was a pretty hefty sum since it was a Hollywood paycheck, as you can imagine, uh, probably freaking pennies to them. Uh, someone went up to him and says, great, don't spend a penny of it. Put it in your bank account and never touch it again. And Josh Whedon said that because of that, he found that he had the freedom to say no. <laughs> and that's actually a very powerful thing in the entertainment, not just Hollywood, the entertainment industry in general, that by knowing that you have enough money to take care of yourself for a while, being able to turn down jobs because you don't need the money gives you the freedom to pick and choose what for you may be the things of the most passionate or the highest quality for you. And so he said his entire career, he's had the option to say no. And because of that, it allowed him to show his value as a writer and a professional enough that it got him to a point where he could create his own TV shows. He could write and direct his own movies. He would have places on the negotiating table instead of just having to get an agent to do it for him. So it's like, if there's a piece of advice I can give anyone trying to get into any form of entertainment, Mm. once you get that first big check, put it in your bank, never touch it again. (laughs) Because that is basically your safety net. (laughs) Thank you. 
Right. And, and if I could, uh, if I could just fanboy for, for a small moment, um, I'm glad that that's a Joss Whedon quote because oh, my yeah. favorite uh, you franchise of his uh, YouTube channel called How to Drink. And it's actually a pretty simple recipe to make butter's milk that he does. And even the, and this is a guy who openly admits, even though he's a huge sci-fi geek, that he could never get into Firefly, which, you know, fair yeah. enough. He still came out and said after he made that drink, this is, I think this is the best drink we ever made on this show. <laughs> I I actually think I have um, subscribed to that channel because uh, I think there yep. was an episode on on Romulan ale. There was uh, an episode yeah, on a, Galactic on a Warhammer drink or something. It yeah, was it's, uh, looked, wolf, yeah. it's based it's basically uh, what binging with Babbage oh. is, where it's making food and recipes based off of like various things, various shows and TV. That's what how to drink is, but for alcohol and. I love that channel because the guy clearly is a mm-hmm. really, really good bartender who's passionate about what he does. But I swear to God, excuse me, but I swear to God, he is on a set. Either that or but he's just, also the fact that there's just that one camera <laughs> set up and the bar is so small, it just looks like a set. <laughs> and everything about how the camera work and stuff and the editing is done is so overproduced that I am just like, I'm constantly entertained by the juxtaposition of you know, just overproduced execution with a, with a genuinely good heart, basically. Because, like, every time this guy is, like, pouring an ounce into his jigger, they have to put it in super mm. slow motion. I kind of like that, though. I like that it shows things like how not necessarily all the liquor you're pouring into your jigger goes in the jigger and you're constantly getting alcohol all over your fingers and shit, because that is real. <laughs> There's no way around it. Believe me, I try. if I get one drop on me, I'm pissed. Mm. And, you know, not a, uh, ooh, it's dirty, ooh, pissed. It's a, no, that's a waste of alcohol, I'm saying from that one drop. <laughs> yeah. Well, being a bartender means coming Party to terms with the fact that Party you're going to spill a lot of liquids, a lot of it expensive. You, you will, every drop that goes down the drain will break your heart, but you will have to pour some really expensive liquor down the drain. It's just inevitable. Um, you will break a lot of glasses. And you know how every time you watch a movie or television show and someone walks in a bar or saloon and the bar and they're always like wiping down the counter? No, it is hands down the most mm, realistic thing you regularly see about bartending because when you're not <laughs> making drinks or prepping the other ingredients you'll need to make drinks, like making sure you got juices in your right spot and stuff like that, you are cleaning. You are constantly cleaning. I made a habit instantly of actually cleaning my stuff as I'm making the drinks. So I'll like pour two or three ingredients to my jigger and then I'm immediately like rinsing it off. You know, it's, yeah, it's, um, right. And, 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 and just as a side note, when you had said pouring stuff in your jigger, (laughs) I reflect, I reflexively grab my jigger off the table. It's it's uh, once you start getting home bar equipment, you wind up with a nice collection of jiggers. It's just inevitable. <laughs> mm. Well, I, I like having a jigger because it's what is it? I think it's fifteen, it ounce, ounces. 15 milliliters. Uh, your shot is uh, and one and a half 30 ounces. Milliliters. I really want to get a jigger that's a good uh, two ounces. 
generally from what I've seen, most jiggers come in three sizes. You have two ounce jigger with a one ounce on the bottom or top, depending on how you look at it. Your uh, full shot jigger, out, ounce and a half to a half shot, three quarters of an ounce on the other side. And your one ounce and half ounce jiggers. And uh, generally it's the, Definitely what you're using the most, I find, is the mm. one half ounce and the half ounce. Use the, with the uh, one ounce creeping right in between. And that's, uh, that's, I don't know, that's just how I'm used to doing it. Well, well, I got this jigger from <laughs> Wish.com, aka what I like to call China Direct. So it's in it's in it, uh, metric. Uh, so, it's so yeah, excuse me. It 15 was, milliliters well, and 30 milliliters too, for many, many reasons. Like, uh, when I made that, when I made my recipe for Romulan ale, it was all in milliliters. Well, I mean, <laughs> as, as much as we Americans love the imperial system and, and use it to our dying breath. Uh, there, there's just a, <laughs> I don't know, a oh, scientific yeah. oomph to metrics, like espe- like especially as as a writer, like and for the audience, I, I brought Evan on to the podcast because he started a Monday through Friday word sprint for a group of fellow writers, and he included me, and I was like, hey. We should uh, do the social That's distancing and talk so about stuff and a drink, beer. but on, the, on a podcast. <laughs> and uh, I was I was drinking a hot chocolate earlier. That's you just mean what you I haven't been drinking? Before. Shame! It's kind of funny since the start. I've been doing so much drinking. I think even my mom was a little worried that I might like. Oh, don't do so much drinking. You turn to an alcoholic. And I'm like, well, funny thing about me, mom. I don't actually. I like to drink, but I don't like to get drunk. <laughs> Like I like to get drunk when I'm around friends, but that's uh, in my mind. Mm. That's I like to get drunk around friends for the same for the same reason. I generally prefer to have sex with someone I genuinely care about. It's about who. It's not just. It's not the experience. It's who you're with. You know. Yeah. Yes. And if I'm just like sitting at home the on my sofa right now, so I like to have just enough gotcha. alcohol that I feel its effect on me. And then I don't want any more alcohol for a while. Like, you know, it's to that point where, you know, if you keep going, you're going to start getting tipsy. And if you keep going after that, you're going to get drunk. Mm. I like to stop at the point where I know if I keep going, I'm going to get tipsy. Let that wear off. And then maybe if I'm in the mood, I'll make another drink. And even then, I need some hardcore liquor to get to that point. So, mm. Well, uh you are a better man than me at that point, because <laughs> if you if you actually decide to listen to some of our podcasts, well, if it helps, I am, I didn't I am realize usually drunk until this whole uh, court, uh, this COVID situation started. Uh, being stuck at home and not and since bartending is a fairly new thing for me, not wanting to stop and constantly drinking all these things I make because I have nobody else to give them to. Uh, which is why I've had several of my friends, and I'm like, if if you're bored, come over to my place. I am desperate to just make drinks for <laughs> people. You know, uh, it's... Yes. As, as long as well, fortunately, not most more of than mine, ten people, uh, and you are six feet, about apart. The six feet apart thing, because I know they're 
most of them are even more paranoid about this stuff than I am. So <laughs> very, very helpful, thankfully. But um, but yeah, it's uh, pretty much. Mm. I've just been drinking all these cocktails because otherwise, what are you making them for? It's like it's like decorative towels. I can't stand decorative towels. Towels exist to dry things. Don't sit there and tell me they're there to look good. If you wanted that, you buy a painting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't don't get me started on decorative because you got decorative. Oh, I you can dry your hands on that. That's the there person who's house that in their mind. No, fuck that shit. I'm drying my hands, drying my hands on a decorative towel because the key <laughs> word there is still towel. A towel that looks nicer than other towels is still a towel. Damn it. It's there to dry something. So, same thing with cocktails. You don't make cocktails to not drink them. And doing that right. is what taught me where I like my personal alcohol level to be. You know, blood alcohol level to be, basically. And also, though it is a kind of a relief because, you know, when I say start hmm. bartending, I don't mean I did as a hobby. I've actually been a licensed bartender since... Early last year, or late the year before, uh, late maybe October 2018, give or take. I actually got to get my stuff renewed this year. Um, so, what? And it, that was that was after yeah. you had uh, to be clear to anybody saying that. I grocery job, lost the grocery right? job. And then it doesn't mean I'm fired. I mean, literally, that store does not exist in this area from... anymore. I was there until the end. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And uh and now you work at at a certain yeah. draft house in the city I, which I, also serves as a movie yeah, theater. Knowing that this uh I'll come right out and say it, put it yeah. out in the open, I have okay. no problem admitting it. I work at the Alamo Draft House. Uh this is not an endorsement for them or anything like that, uh just so there's no conflict of interest. But yeah, that is what I... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hey, if you can get a hold of Tim Sponsors. Lee, he probably will spawn. Sponsors! Um, he's a pretty cool dude, actually. Real <laughs> chill. Really easy to talk to. Um, but yeah, that is where I work, and I'm proud of it because I've got, you know, I'm doing a lot. I've started mm. doing a lot of things, getting new, a lot of new skills working there. One of them is uh, the first, like, second job I started doing there was bartending. And uh, where it's, this situation has been handy for me is that the nature of it, because you're, you, it's, not the sitting at a dive bar bartending, you know, it's more, it's bartending in a restaurant sense. I work in the back bar, not the front bar, basically. So I'm just like pumping these drinks out as quickly as I can because, you know, there's like three or four people who all want to drink at the same time with another like dozen getting, who are currently in the process of ordering their next one. So it's not like I get a chance to actually taste these things to make sure they're coming out right or anything else like that. So in a weird way, this home bartending thing I've been doing with myself lately has been kind of nice because it's nice to not only make the drink, but afterwards to taste it and not even determine whether or not I did a good job, mm -hmm. just get an idea of how it tastes in general. Cause you, as a bartender, you make so many drinks that you've never had before, probably never even heard of before. And you're too busy trying mm -hmm. to get them out there to even do a quick little like test taste. And there is a way to do it. Yeah, this, if you want taste a little insider, to make sure there is actually a way to do it where you can it, taste, it you can actually right taste the drink. Just yeah, just put your finger over like a straw or something. It'll put a little Swizzle bit of liquid stick into and it, pull it out, so that nothing from you has actually gone into the drink. And you can use that to make sure everything's mixed the way it's supposed to. 
Right. Well, I was actually thinking like an actual like no, plastic uh, stirring stick that you stir it, and then you just kind of like you need something that'll make sure that it's you can good. suck off and sort of make a small vacuum out of it, basically. You do it, and and the important thing is to make sure that you're taking the least gotcha. amount of liquid, gotcha. and also so, doing everything you can to make sure you are not in any way, shape, or form contaminating it. On top of that. Right, because food food preparation, uh, contamination, lessnessnessness, especially in these uh, uh, trying. What what's that word that everybody likes to I use for it? I think of it myself, and it always for this, for this whole COVID thing. Um, quarantine um, thing keeps coming to my head as I'm at lockdown. No, no, no. It's it's the. It's similar to saying I trying times, but it's more, <laughs> it's got more pizzazz to it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, I mean, so, all right, so before before I get I off no onto idea. this tangent. Most of my conversations um, are like 90% of the was I going to say before that? Somewhere is the topic. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, right. So, so my, challenge, my challenge to you, Evan. Since I have seen your uh, uh, when when this whole quarantine thing started, unprecedented. That's what it was. So, see, so wonderful how the mind works. But uh, since I have seen you make Facebook time, videos yeah. doing reviews and such, yeah, I want to see you do Facebook videos on you happen. making drinks. <laughs> And then sampling, uh, them, and not then because giving I'm like, critiques. Oh, that's a bad idea, or I don't want to do that. It's because I'm doing all these things off of my iPad, off my iPad for the most part, because um, that's what I got. That's the best quality. And if I had somebody who could move a camera around or something around here, great. But the the film geek in me already is constantly critiquing those videos I make on Facebook enough as it is. <laughs> so I, I would drive myself insane if I actually tried to show me making drinks and stuff. Well, I uh, mean... Mm, well, I, I would, since... As long as I still have this job and I'm still essential, no, I just I could offer my services as cameraman. <laughs> I am quick though. Like if anybody asks, I'll tell them what the recipe I used is. I'll just put together ingredients because honestly, it's um, it's it's going back to that sex analogy. It's more fun to do than it is to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, but then, uh, and and another thing you've mentioned binging with Babish, and that that's one one bald dude with a wicked beard that I Me follow too. also I on on uh, YouTube. I love watching his videos, and it's and it's not so much like you say it it's better to do than watch, but I don't know. I I think you could bring a a like a dry, sarcastic, Irishy. Irish <laughs> uh, oh no, no! Like I said, this isn't me saying it's not a bad idea. I am saying the problem is slant to drinks. It's already next to impossible for me to do stuff like that to my own satisfaction. 
But to put it to make it so I'm satisfied enough, I put it out there under these circumstances. No. Also, it's like I to me, I'm just a knowledgeable novice right now. It's like I'm far more likely to get my friend Mike, who pretty much all he's been his whole life is either a soldier or a bartender, and have him do a lot of those sorts of things than me. Being a soldier. Yeah. As myself having been a soldier as well, I guess. Yeah, well, he was. He's but Army Special anyways. Forces. I think he's technically still in it, but he's not currently active. It's one of those things we need to have another like Afghanistan situation. Uh, otherwise, they won't be calling him anytime soon. And even then, if he's at a certain age, they won't call him at all for obvious reasons, of course. But um, yeah, it's like he's been his, as far as I can tell, his whole life, he's either been a soldier, you know, overseas doing stuff there, or he's been a bartender over here mm. making his money bartending <laughs> so that and he's mm. a much better person to go to for that kind of a thing and you know on top of that he's also as he likes he likes to brag about how he's uh he's hispanic add that to the fact that he was in the military and let's just say you never have to worry about food running out if you go to one of his barbecues <laughs> he's one of those mm. guys who's like i only know how to cook like, like some of us know how to cook a steak or two at a time. He only knows how to cook the cow. <laughs> yeah. So what you do is you, you pack the cow with tannerite, a couple blocks of C4, <laughs> and then you get Billy Bob to uh, load up his Mosin and fire a shot, and then bam, free steak for everybody. Well, I'm pretty sure he put the cow in a grill somehow, but... Last time I checked, he's in the process of turning one of his two sheds in his backyard into a little small bar, too, because all of, keep in mind, it's uh, he's probably the person I've seen the most aside from my roommate since this whole thing started, and we're all of us by nature mm. are sort of like social, anti-social people, for lack of a better way to put it. Like, we like our small group of friends. We might bring somebody else in as circumstance uh, allows or demands, but for the most part, we're this tight group. Mm. We usually meet each other in small groups once in a blue moon. Maybe there's like some huge event, like it's someone's birthday or someone's getting married, so we'll all go out drinking at the bars or something. Um, but for the most part, we don't usually... We're not the Glenwood South crowd, basically. We don't feel the need to go out and do a whole bunch of stupid stuff with friends and strangers all the time. This, is, this situation has completely changed that for all of us. As like within a week after this whole thing got started, we suddenly started craving. So all of us started craving having social lives again. Like uh, two of our friends, Oz and Autumn, mm. who have uh, been married for a couple of years now, and they, you know, uh, well, you're married, so you understand. There is that point. And it's not something you you're even aware you're doing. It's just a point where just all you're doing is being at home all the time. You kind of just don't have as much interest with the outside world when you know you're with that one person. I guess it's that thing that makes you realize a lot of your need to be social involves dating, so you can find somebody to be like that with. But I digress. Well, and it and it's not, and it is part that, but then it's also part going out and being social and drinking socially costs a lot more money when you're married than it and does it feels like when work. you're single. <laughs> it's like 
it's speaking as a single person, the idea of me having to change my normal routine so I can do that always feels like work. Just like I'm only in the mood for it two or three times a year. But this has made it so that now I'm in the mood for it like two or three times a week. And uh, even her, even Oz and Autumn, like I said, married couple who are in that stage, like for the first time ever, they're like, we didn't realize how much we weren't hanging out with people until this started. And now all either of us wants to do is go out and hang out with people. <laughs> like, and, well, when when you're told you can't, that's well, when for me, you it's really frustrating because literally about one or two weeks before this happened, for everybody else, it's now that you can't, you want to sort of a thing. For me, when I could, mm. just before this started to go down, just before we really had to do the self quarantining thing, just before everything was locking down, I was already starting to feel like, you know what? I'm at a point now. I just want to go out. I want to meet new people. I know the places to hang out at and see what else is out there. Bam. Pandemic. (laughs) Everyone else, it's pandemic. Now I want to see people again. Me. I want to meet new people. Pandemic. Son of a... (laughs) Well, now, now just just so you know, if, if you feel the need to swear, you can. Oh no! Uh, my, I've already, you know, I think I've already scored a couple of times podcast. on here already. I'm not censoring, but if I censor myself, it's usually more for comedic effect than anything. <laughs> ah, gotcha. Yeah, it's like uh, okay, yeah. It's it's one of my gotcha. things where it's like censorship doesn't bother me. It's when it becomes like universal under all circumstances, you have to do this. That's what I get annoyed with censorship. Like how I've had several conversations uh, with friends and others about how. I kind of get annoyed in any like TV show or movie made for adults where they go like out of their way to hide somebody's naked body because half the time their need to hide it is far more distracting than a naked body could ever be. <laughs> <laughs> well, right off the top of my head, I, I'm thinking of Austin. Yeah, but that Powers. was the joke though, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> Especially with one of my favorite censorship jokes mm. ever. Where they covered up an image, where they covered up um, what's her name's boobs with a picture of boobs that I'm almost convinced are an actual drawing of her boobs. I could be wrong there, but they seem so perfectly proportioned to the actual woman herself that <laughs> I have trouble believing they're not. I, I need, yeah, need elaboration um, on it. Oh, it's at the end of the first Austin Powers movie after he marries uh, what's her name. And it's just him like, the joke is that he's constantly holding things up and she always positions them so they're covering up her chest because, like, Austin is, she's just completely naked all the time, like, during that because they're on their honeymoon. Mm-hmm. And the last thing that right, she covers yeah. her breast up with is a sketch, is literally a pencil sketch of boobs. <laughs> it's, like, right there. Well, shit, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to watch that again. It's been... Probably ten years. It's since one I of my favorite visual gags Powers. in a movie. It's right there within uh, the Simpsons, where, with the now infamous uh, nude skateboard scene with Bart the Simpson, where it's like them creatively covering up his junk over and over and over again until he goes across a whole bush that covers everything except his junk. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I've developed mm. a strange interest in uh, nudity and entertainment because of one very weird thing that sparked this whole like almost borderline obsession with it ever since which is how much i completely utterly hate and despise the underwear scene from star trek into darkness 
Oh, you're talking about uh, the Admiral's daughter where she yeah. is just and it's the most, and it's The reason why that kicked off this fascination is because it's, it, you know how in a weird way you could sort of break yourself off even psychologically into different parts? When I watched that in the theaters for the first time, I was surprised at the part of me that was the most angry and the most offended by that moment was teenage me that's still lumbering around in my head. That version of me that used to watch HBO late at night, hoping I catch it, hoping that this like action movie or already movie I'm watching that's utter trash actually has some nudity in it. I want to see a pair of boobs because the internet wasn't a thing yet. Like that's the part of me that was watching that scene and was going, what the fuck is this insulting piece of shit? <laughs> and <that> was- <laughs> Well, it, it's funny you mentioned that because I remember teenage me back when I, when I was still living in Texas and we just had the basic cable, but you know, you could pull up like HBO Cinemax or Showtime and it would be scrambled, but there was that magic five minutes at midnight when it would switch from HBO, Cinemax, or Showtime to a porn channel. And for that magic five minutes, you could see porn commercials. Don't get me started on those late-night phone sex commercials that would pop up on, like, USA and stuff like that back then. Well, but you know what? But you get what I mean, right? Like, that part of you who is so desperate for boobs that you'll watch the worst content ever that's boring the hell out of you. Um, on the slim hope that they'll just pop up on a movie you on a movie or TV show, where you have no reason to know for sure ahead of time that's even going to happen. <laughs> uh, once again, this is before internet was a thing, right. because I think any twelve year old could find all the boobs they want to, and then some now. Um, but when that's the part, yeah. But when that, yeah. Yeah. But like, when that part of your brain that has not evolved from that point, that part that makes it so that even now you're like, I don't care if they're ugly or not, I want to see all the boobs. You know, when that's the part that's really, really mm. bad because they're mm-hmm. seeing a near or naked woman. Well, for me personally, that just created this weird spark of inspiration and need to truly examine how we handle the naked body in our entertainment. Because... Because, like, going back to that underwear scene into darkness again, two thoughts immediately went to my head. One, my guess is that this is an actress who's done nudity before, so if I really need to see this, I can see it without the coverings with a simple Google search. And I was right. (laughs) And two, Hmm. if this was, uh, like, I even if it is a big blockbuster action-y, flashy version of it, I go to Star Trek to watch Star Trek. Even before I became a Trekkie, I was going to Star Trek to watch Star Trek. If I just wanted to see sexy ladies, I just watch porn. And, you know, and it's like, hmm. and that's what kicked this off. It was like, at what point did someone decided that our, our stories needed to have a porn aspect to it? What I have learned from this for me personally is I tend to like nudity in one of two forms. It either needs to be slice of life, like it's, you're not showing it off, you're not focusing on it. And keep in mind, it's just regardless of gender, it's just a feeling that this is what would happen in this moment in real life. Because that is actually really good, I think, for immersion, excuse me, from an audience point of view. Or it needs to be disturbing. And disturbing doesn't necessarily mean like 
you know, the beautiful woman turning into the ugly old hag in The Shining, though I like that moment too. It could just be something like, uh, it, let's be honest, if you genuinely believe that the couple that you are seeing on screen who are having this incredibly passionate love scene where they're having sex, in real life, if you're seeing that, you're going to feel really uncomfortable. And it's not because two people are having sex, it's because two people are having a moment of intimacy that should only belong to them. And you feel like an intruder and not in any positive way whatsoever if you're being exposed to that. And that's kind of like the kind of stuff they try to show us in those old 90s and 80s movies when sex scenes were really, really cartoonishly bad. Like, yeah. Like, if they act, <laughs> in my mind, if they actually pulled off what they're trying to portray there, it would be incredibly uncomfortable to watch for the same reason that you were like when you were a kid and it was very, very uncomfortable when their parents that are on the verge of a divorce start arguing about or start arguing uh, at each other with no regard to the other people who can hear them or see them in the house. And they're, and they're literally shouting some very personal stuff at each other. You know, it's, it's that kind of discomfort because there's some experiences that are only supposed to be experienced between two people. So if I am seeing naked sexy time in my TV show or my movie, I should really, really feel it should really be one of those things where I feel like this is not something I'm supposed to be watching. I need to go away. <laughs> you know? Because like I said, otherwise, mm. if that's uh, if I'm looking to be turned on, I will just watch porn. <laughs> that's that's literally the purpose of its existence. I go to a story to experience a story, not so I can get some sort of backroom porn. Yeah. Mm, yeah, and I can understand that. And I mean, we could segue this into a into a talk about the the new Star Trek versus the Star Which Trek one? that we grew up on. <laughs> I feel and, like now I have like three different Star Treks, and I don't just mean each one's a different show either. I mean, um, like in the nineties. You know, when we were doing with, with during the TNG era, I would say, oh, yeah, that's all Star Trek, right? Like, it really has this genuine feel, not just in, in terms of, like, the production, not just in terms of the setting, but also in how the production and design work and all that is handled. Like, you have no problem believing that Voyager, Deep Space Nine, and TNG were all taking place roughly the same time in that same sort of type part of the universe. And, but, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, but they, they were, yeah. But now it's like I have trouble believing, <laughs> even with the sliding scale of timelines, that um, the Kelvin timeline movies, the Discovery, and um, Picard are all taking place in the same universe. Uh, Discover, I mean, for starters, Discovery kind of shot itself in the foot from the get-go uh, with the fact that they made no effort whatsoever to try to match up with um, TOS. And I get a lot of people who are fans of the show, uh, their reasoning is, well, you can't really make it look like that. That stuff is dated. And I'm like, well, you can at least make it look like the Kelvin timeline Star Trek, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Since that's an updated version of TOS, and they're not even doing that. And the fact that there's like no warm lighting whatsoever on that show, everything is dark and brown and ugly. Nothing looks, everything looks like a toy developer's version of Star Trek 
who's like, we sold all the old Star Trek toys, make new ones. You know, <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, whereas Star Trek Picard, mm. uh, to me, in a lot of ways, uh, both in terms of story, character, and aesthetic, is what I would much rather Star Trek be, because it is it is very new. And uh, there is a massive difference in how the sets look and how the clothes look and how the storytelling is being approached, even some of the dialogue and stuff. But it doesn't feel like it's not an extension of TNG. If, it, if anything, it just... If it, okay, so just just right quick, a mm-hmm. uh, a point of clarification. TNG. When you say TNT, yeah, I think you TNG. mean TNG. Yeah, the next TNG. generation. Like, if I watch the next generation and watch Star Trek yeah. Picard, right. I so, don't think that I, I'll recognize instantly they're different shows for obvious reasons. I mean, most of the cast is different with only the TNG character, regular characters coming in and out, depending on the episode. But, like, at no point am I like, this is clearly not the same universe. If anything, what I'm seeing in Star Trek Picard is that stuff I always knew was off camera during, you know, the next generation of Deep Space Nine, but I never saw, like, people wearing normal-looking clothes or, you know, getting a good look at what actual Earth looks like in the 24th century and not just it being a set, you know, that sort of thing. Like, yeah, I mean, this is a starship that's, like doesn't look like other starships I've seen in Star Trek, but one, it's not a Federation starship, and two, it looks like they're taking the technology from the next generation and showing a logical progression of that technology since it's been like 30 years almost, as opposed to just making whole... Yeah. Okay, so, so ju- just a quick disclaimer, if any listeners have not watched Picard, because I know I haven't, I'm not going to say anything. Uh, spoilers could be ahead. I mean, all I'm talking well, about is any. Yeah, yeah I'm mean, just talking about like we know how Trekkies can And get. honestly, you see the stuff in the trailers and stuff. So, and it's like, and basically what I mean is like, um, to me, yeah. I think well, from a yeah. production and designing standpoint, the best series out of the franchise is actually start is Enterprise, because. I love how the outfits are jumpsuits, mm. but they're jumpsuits where you mm. see how they're the start of the Federation design for their uniforms. It feels like, yeah. But also mm-hmm. what I like is, because, yeah. you know, at, by the time Enterprise was on the air, it was almost 40 years after Star Trek TOS had first come on the air. Uh, I think closer to 35, actually. Um, but they purposely treated the technology like it was futuristic, even by arguably today's standards. But at the same time, they tried to they went to work really hard in a very small time constraint, no less. So you got to give them credit there, too, to make it so it was still sort of mashed up with the technology that you were going to see on TOS. So really, it just looked like last year, but not fully developed versions of the TOS technology so that it wasn't contradicting the general aesthetic and design of the original Star Trek. That's a big part of why I don't like the look of Discovery at all, because it looks like they decided that because we have advanced uh, special effects for TV now, we're going to make the 23rd century look like the 25th in this universe. And that's just kind of really stupid to me. <laughs> hmm. Especially yeah. especially for a show that's supposed to take and, place and like I, 10 years before the original I Star actually... Right, and 
I, I haven't watched Discovery because I haven't done the, the CBS pay to watch thing, but I did watch all of Enterprise. Yeah. And I, I, I often actually say enjoyed that. The first half of Enterprise was, is some of the worst TV you'll ever see. The second half of Enterprise is some of the best TV you'll ever see. And astute watchers will see Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> As a oh, engineering, uh, Star Trek always crew. had a really good run of like celebrity cam- cameos and things like that. If you look for him, I love how Jason Alexander uh, actually did an episode, um, and he insisted that he get to play a genuine villain because they were like, "Oh, you want to do one of our funny episodes?" Like, no, I'm a Star Trek fan. Make me like an actual like Star Trek character, basically, just a nice little one-off, like you would see on TOS when they just had like the alien threat of the week or something. I'm going to apologize for any sounds people mm. may hear they don't like, but I so think which... So which? Uh, well, uh, to be <laughs> fair, I've already used this bathroom. This is a natural result times. of drinking. I don't know what the... Uh, so. Yeah, I'm using my uh, Bluetooth earbuds, so I don't Indeed. know what they'll hear. So <laughs> but yeah, it's... um. But like I said, it's... I like a okay. lot of people... Uh, I try to take a more positive route, especially if it's something I love, like Star Trek. So I don't like Discovery from what I've watched, but I am purposely withholding judgment on it as a series because it's only had two seasons. And historically speaking, the first two seasons of most uh, Star Trek shows are the two worst seasons of those shows. Like, you know, in fact... TNG, which is a show I freaking love, mm. it hits the nostalgia part of my heart with like full blade, you know, with like mm. all guns going. Uh, the first two seasons of that show are, in my opinion, the two worst seasons of the entire franchise, and that's including Discovery. So I can honestly say, <laughs> and you're not wrong because TNG was uh, bringing Star Trek back after the 1967 was when was the original series original it came out. Back. honestly everything that sucked yeah, about 67. um the first two seasons of tng you can actually trace back to gene roddenberry because he was basically because his writing staff had to do everything more hmm. or less with their creative hands tied behind their backs and it's um because of for those who don't know, like I love Star Trek, but I'm very critical of Gene Roddenberry because I consider Star Trek a franchise that succeeded despite its creator, not because of its creator. I also say the same thing about X-Files and Star Wars, because when you actually look into the behind-the-scenes stuff of that, you realize this person was doing more to sabotage themselves than others than they actually were to help things. <laughs> despite the fact that we put them on a pedestal mm. because they did actually create the thing. There's no denying Gene Roddenberry is the creator of Star Trek, but I also think he's one of the worst things that happened to Star Trek aside outside of its creation. And in this case, um, it felt like by the time he started doing TNG, and for those first two seasons, he had total creative control. So nothing happened or didn't happen without his say-so. He had the final word on everything, and he knew everything that was going on. More or less. There is some other stuff behind the scenes that he is not responsible for that was not helpful. 
including at least one incredibly bad actor who's probably one of the worst people to ever be involved in television ever. I believe it was his lawyer who suddenly decided he was a TV creator too. Anyway, but um, Gene Roddenberry's problem was that apparently at some point mm. he decided he was more interested in espousing his philosophy than he was in telling a story, which is not the best thing ever when making a television show. But the other bigger mm. problem is that he was convinced he was right about everything and never allowed any ideas that truly challenged or questioned this vision he had. And which is uh, the essential heart of Star Trek. That's, that's why a term we often use for it now is speculative fiction. You're supposed to challenge things, especially your own ideas. And to make it even worse, he dictated that none of the characters, because humanity is so evolved, as he put it, man will want to go back in time and explain evolution to him, uh, that none of, the, none of the characters were to have any serious problems, issues, or conflicts with each other, but he still expected his writers to somehow write like very engaging drama, which drama doesn't work without conflict. <laughs> this is okay. So yeah, so you're still like talking first two about seasons of TNG. TNG this right? is eventually why, and after a certain point, it starts to feel like almost mm. every alien race they come across is an asshole. Because the writers figured out that they were allowed to bring in conflict as long as it wasn't coming from the main characters. So they had to bring out an outside source of conflict constantly in order to just do the basics of writing and storytelling. Right, because I remember like the oh. first iteration of Ferengi that I saw was like was so terrible yeah. as, as opposed to Ferengi that we know now. Like yeah. they were they were animalistic. And the Ferengi or, or probably the feral would them be now better is entirely because because it was, of Deep Space Nine. Go ahead. Yeah, because um Deep Space Nine was the one that really delved into the Ferengi as individuals, as a culture. It's the only time we ever saw their home world. Because on TNG, they yeah. got better on TNG, but at the same time on that show, they never stopped being a joke. Which is really, really depressing, because there was a lot of good things <sighs> they could have done. My favorite is um, there's one episode, people forget about this, it was a Beverly Crusher episode, where they actually focused on where um, she befriends a Ferengi scientist. And he talks about how hard it is to be in that field among his race. And I'm like, this is one of the most interesting characters to ever pop up on the show. They kill him at the end of the first act. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, at least at the time. When, and I say at the time, I mean interesting characters. Because, yeah. Because we, we find out. Welcome. Um, we find out in later TNG and into DS9, well, I mean, we, we know already that Ferengi, yeah. the Ferengi That's are a profit-based culture. They really get creative with what it means to be a profit-based yeah. culture. And, shows, and even show some of the positives instead of always focusing <laughs> on, to be blunt, perceived negatives that the TNG always did. 
Yeah. Well, and then that that also calls back to like that first time that I remember Ferengi being in TNG. I remember exactly the episode and it was about, uh, we watched it a few months ago. It's, just, it's embarrassing. <laughs> and so, so, so correct me if I'm wrong. It's one of those intelligent planet, or there's a godlike intelligent species there and then the Ferengi are like crouching are and trying to cover their faces briefly in the stage direction I think it's just the guy is just one of those very very advanced races with really excellent technology and I always remember the episode just ending with Riker walking off with the guy as they just have a casual conversation because he's talking about how awesome the Federation is to him and and there is hardly anything worse than seasons one and two. William T. Riker of TNG. He is such a douchebag. But because <laughs> in um, Gene Roddenberry's mind, that's what a that's what a good man is supposed to be. He naturally frames him as being constantly right. It's like Rick from Rick and Morty, but without any of the self awareness from the writers. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that that. <laughs> that gives me a new perspective oh, of the trumpet blower. Oh, I actually am not familiar from with Alaska. That, but... No, uh, oh, Riker okay. I see. Oh, played okay. trumpet, I he and he was from oh, Alaska. I don't miss. Oh. That may be also one of those things where it's like I I only knew it for a yeah. second before I forgot it among the buttload of other information that washed over me as I binged the whole series. <laughs> couple years back. When you binge an entire series, you're going to miss details. There's just no mm. way around it. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Unless you pop some amphetamines and you're just got that yeah. that pen and paper like, oh, yeah, when it comes to everything. TNG, I don't think it's Ooh. a coincidence that it was the but, third so, season when it really started to get good and pick up its stride and only had a couple of good and one really great episode before that. And once you know it, that's around about the time Gene Roddenberry started having serious health issues from the illness that eventually killed him. That's why I tell everybody Deep Space Nine is objectively hands down mm. the best Star Trek series. Because by that point, it has this perfect sweet spot. If it given the okay by Gene Roddenberry, but he was too sick to be involved in any way, shape, or form in his production... For the first half of its run, TNG was the big show. For the second half of its run, all the attention and marketing was being put onto Voyager. And because they were Star Trek, they were never going to have a budget below a certain amount, which was hands down far higher than almost most other science fiction shows, let alone television shows in general, would have. So they had that sweet spot where they had as much money, where they had more money than most TV creators get to basically go off and do their own thing because no one was paying enough attention to them to stop them. The writers ran that show and they took full advantage of every single ounce of potential that show had. And that show never looked, I, one of the things I hate the most about Voyager is that it is just a sinkhole of excellent potential. The things you could do with just one of the many myriad basic parts of its original concept. Half the crew basically being defectors and terrorists. 
the fact that they're lost out in the middle of nowhere away from all like federation resources um the fact that this is just a science vessel and not like a combat vessel you could have done so much from a story standpoint that they almost never do on that entire show all these space yeah holy shit I hadn't yeah. even thought of that. That Voyager was a science vessel, not yeah. like a and it was an experimental not like one a capital ship like the Enterprise <laughs> so, was. And but you know, in Deep Space Nine, meanwhile, its its main concept is we're a space station, but it's a space station that's orbiting a specific planet that basically is not too dissimilar from like. Basically, imagine if the Nazis had like invaded Israel and we finally got Nazis out of there. <laughs> yeah, with the Cardassians and the Bajorans. The Cardassians. Wait, wait, no, no, wait. I, I think I heard like the perfect analogy. Not to yeah, that. It was that Deep Space actually. Nine was Casablanca. Um, for those who aren't familiar with Deep Space Nine, uh, its setting is that there's a planet called Bajor which has spent, I think, 20 years being occupied by another planet called Cardassia. And they clearly took a lot of Holocaust inspiration from what that was like. Uh, and um, basically the space station that the Cardassians had made as part of the peace treaty with the Federation, uh, basically the deal is that the Cardassians will leave Bajor, will stop uh, occupying Bajor, on the you know so that card so that the federation won't step in because they know they can't take on the federation and so they mm. part of the treaty was that they were basically gifted for lack of a better way to put it mm. the space station they had set up called Turok Nor, which they renamed the space nine so another fun part of that space station is that it's not even federation technology so they have to figure out how to adjust their technology way of doing things to it half your cast and it took me half to do the first season before this actually hit me at least half the cast are not federation officers which is a first for Star Trek, because previously all main cast members were Federation officers, uh, with the exception of uh, arguably Wesley Crusher, who becomes a Federation officer, sort of, about halfway through the series, and is an acting ensign before the end of the first season. And mm. halfway through the first season, it gets there, even that long. Okay, so for, for those people who don't know and also to satisfy my curiosity about the non-federation people uh let's go over those so i'm, I'm going to start off who with is one of my uh, favorite characters the major, in all star trek and in my opinion the bajoran the major woman in the franchise <laughs> i said my opinion i i eh, well i I would agree. I don't blame I would Jerry agree. Like however, Jerry Ryan, Jerry Ryan has my heart on that Star Trek Picard. I'm kind of hoping they do a spinoff series about her because they took her character to some interesting places on that show. And I was, but that, and she has not aged. That woman has not but, uh, aged in like nearly thirty years. Of her <laughs> but that's but but that said though, and a lot of it is um. Not just right, not a visitor but, okay. of her body and all that, but just her attitude. I love really, really strong women. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but in all of her appearances, Major Kira only loses one fight in the whole series.
uh, I will take your word on that. It's been yeah, it's, again probably ten yeah, years. It's one fight since I I've watched season two, and it was against uh, Deep Space Nine. So there's no shame in losing that fight. <laughs> yeah. Well. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, she did it with honor because I don't remember they, uh, and uh, came across. Uh, it was a member of the Trill race that was trying to basically steal the Dat symbiont from um, Poseidon. Jaxia, yeah. Jaxia. Because yeah. mm. ja- uh, yeah, it was I, no, Esri She was only in, in one later season. And seasons, as soon as she popped up, I instantly then, wanted her to be... I, I instantly wished that um, she had been the Dax character instead of Jesse and Dax. Not an actress thing, but a character thing. Like, Jadzia Dax was an excellent character. Like, no way around that. But the thing I found interesting about Esri Dax is that Jadzia, like a lot of Trills who have a symbiont, was somebody who spent all of her life and formative years basically training to be able to have a symbiont. Whereas Esri kind of volunteered to take on a symbiont with none of the training or education you're supposed to have for it. Because if some Trill didn't take the Dax symbiont on, Dax would adopt. And to me, the person who doesn't have any of the training or knowledge for this incredibly huge life-changing thing, because you're essentially taking on another personality and trying to meld it with your own instead of either taking it over completely or having it take over you, like that is a far more fascinating character. And the fact that she only got one season and even, even though they spent the first half of that season putting way too much focus on that character because the writers had a new toy to play with, they never fully, I thought, took that potential, this novice for this insane situation to its full potential. Whereas with John Zia, uh, she was just too normal a character for her own race, in my opinion, to be as interesting as Esri was. Well, and then there was also, of course, the fact that uh, Cisco kept calling her old man because I guess her previous... Yeah, her pre- well, her, she's had several hosts. Her previous incarnation, yeah, her I guess, was previous a dude. Before she before uh, the symbiote went into Jadzia was Cisco's mentor. And the actress did a really, really good job of actually acting mm. like a woman who's in her 20s, but she still has all the memories and experience of being this older guy's mentor. Considering that when she took on the job, she was only like 21, 22 years old, and uh, Avery Brooks, who played Benjamin Sisko, he was already like a good 10 or 20 year veteran of acting by that point. And he helped her mm. get over her initial discomfort with the idea that I'm supposed to be the mm. older mentor to a guy who's old enough to be my dad, basically. <laughs> um, so, so going back to what you were saying right. earlier, for those who don't and, know, and, your Federation characters on Deep Space Nine are not... Commander, later Captain, Benjamin Sisko, um, Jadzia Dax, who's the science officer, who is a drill. Uh, so she's basically got the memories and experience of this really, really old, right. black way to put it, giant worm that's existing uh, symbiotically inside of her. But she is also still very much the body and consciousness of a young woman who's 
like I said, just been training her whole life to have that other consciousness inside of her flock, if I would put it. Uh, the doctor, eight, uh, the doctor, Dr. Bashir. Right. He is. Uh, and uh, I like him. He's not a lot of people don't, right? but the reason I love that character from the beginning he is. is he is such a little shit at the start of the show, and that was done on purpose because he was literally. Ah, but they didn't know that when they first created because the show. That was a story genetically enhanced him. human. But they they purposely made him an annoying little shit because the whole point was that this was supposed to be a mm. too self assured, you know, that invincible young person who's doing something brand new for the first time, but without any of the sensitivity they need to have for it. You know, think about that asshole who's taking a year off college and thinks they're going to be enlightened because they're hanging out in Japan while they're acting like Aaron Paul. (laughs) And uh, and the whole point was they knew, they did that for the character because they wanted somebody who purposely lacked life experience that would make them that kind of douchebag so they could grow and develop him as the series went on. And they took full advantage of that. And uh, one of the greatest characters in all of Star Trek, O'Brien, the engineer. <laughs> Who they? Transporter technician in TNG. In fact, there was a, a, a webcomic series about him <laughs> in TNG, specifically, just sitting there in the transporter. Actually, just people forget this. For he started as a helmsman. Did he? He is in the pilot of TNG. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen the pilot, so I can't, I couldn't say. Yeah, counter but... at far point. He's, he's right there in the first episode taking the helm. And apparently, from what I heard, the reason they just kept bringing him back is because they just like that actor. So, they eventually made him. yeah, who, who is awesome. Like, if you see him outside of Star Trek, you don't blame him. You don't blame them for wanting to bring it back every chance they got. And they actually had to well, keep working around his film schedule when he was doing Deep Space Nine. And I also want to point out uh, with the Deep Space Nine cast that another character is Jake Sisko, uh, Captain, later, I mean, Commander, later Benjamin Sisko's son. He never becomes Federation. Hmm. Or I should say he's a Federation citizen, but he never becomes Starfleet. What I really should be saying is there's like no Starfleet. I only have to care to Starfleet. Aside from that, you got Major Kira, who's basically acting as a sort of impromptu ambassador for Bajor. Um, you and have yeah, yeah, Odo, who is one of my favorite characters, who's the head, of, who's basically the head of security on the station, i.e., top cop. Uh, and he's a shapeshifter of unknown origin, and that becomes surprisingly important very, very quickly in the show. Um, he, uh, he's a changeling. Uh, a founder changeling, right? Oh, no, no. For anyone else who's seen the show, we shouldn't put that spoiler out there. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, well, I, I did say if you haven't seen any of this, spoilers ahead. So they've That's, been. Okay. Spoilers for a 25 year old show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then you have um, Quark, the greatest Ferengi of all time. <laughs> mm. They don't call him that in the show. I'm just saying, having watched all of Star Trek, he really is the greatest Ferengi of all time. Armin Shimmerman. Yes, who is the um, he was in charge of Quark's bar, which is kind of the main hangout area. That's, that's what I find. That's it's, one more. Yeah, that's one of the more interesting things for me about Deep Space Nine is because every other Star Trek show, I'd say your main room is the bridge, and if there's something important going on they need to discuss, and their secondary room is a meeting room that's always set up somewhere on the ship. But I feel like the main room 
of Deep Space Nine. It was originally intended to be their sort of bridge. I forgot what they called it, their control station or whatever. But in the end, it ultimately just wound up being Quarks. Quarks was more Deep Space Nine than any other center room in that show. And and don't don't forget in in Next Generation Ten Forward with Whoopi Goldberg as Guinan. Yeah, but I always felt like at best, like if you are to put in tiers of made rooms, that was at best third. And that show that never served a real major, rarely served a real major plot purpose. It was either a place to show your characters before the crisis happened, a place to show your characters after the crisis had been resolved. Or a place for your characters mm. to go because they were dealing with a character arc issue and they needed guidance advice. <laughs> or, or that Which, one episode where I, I think it was Picard was still on the ship and the ship was docked, but they had a some. Okay, we got you back. We're back. I think so. <laughs> that that's yeah. That segment went on for I think an hour and 45 minutes. So it, it might've just been anchor. Like I know might've just been like, I remember three episodes with Picard trapped mm. on the ship. Uh, one in, I think season one, where it was him and Riker because the binary alien race was doing an experiment with their ship. And they spent a lot of time on the holodeck for that one. Cause they didn't have a 10 forward shit um, set yet. There's the episode uh, where it's basically Die Hard. Hmm. <laughs> Captain Picard is John McClane. <laughs> Does a bunch of like space pirates or something like that, or something like that, were trying to steal is, the Enterprise. Is that the one where and the, third the one kids with one... him? No, 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 no. That was one where he was just stuck in an elevator. Hmm. <laughs> Which actually, I really like that episode just because the crisis wasn't an alien invasion or anything like that. It's just systems break down like they will if you've been using them constantly over and over again, no matter how much maintenance you've kept up with them. Mm. <laughs> and so it was just uh, it, we just having a bad day on the Enterprise, essentially. Uh, the third one, though, is uh, the one where Beverly Crusher is stuck on the Enterprise and everybody's disappearing, and towards the end, it's just her and Picard. Well, that was the warp bubble one, though, right? Where they did that warp experiment? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember if it was a warp. I think it was. Yeah, because she had to get out of the bubble towards the end. But yeah, that one always liked because that scene with her and Picard, they were the only ones on the ship, is so accidentally hilarious because anybody who's watching the show knows that that's like Picard's wet dream. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like I felt like uh, Patrick Stewart was low-key playing it that way. <laughs> mm. Well, the, okay, so... Like, he's like, let me just turn down the the... Bridges light, so I can show you the part. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna aggressively <laughs> tighten my shirt. Mm. But no, there was. Uh... Allow me to switch into that season five captain's jacket thing I had going, so you can see. Oh, the one, there. the one in Darmok. <laughs> I love that jacket. Yeah. yeah. But, uh... And then later on, I'll show you the outfit I wore, and uh, when I kept on that dude, there was only four lights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. And, okay, so I'm, I'm just going to say I, I did steal that meme of yours and and stole the meme. <laughs> Dude, that's a meme. I stole that meme from someone and, else. And I, I stole the meme that your friend put that he said he was going to steal the meme where it was Indiana Jones holding a, the laugh emoji at the idol. 
Yeah, I stole that one too. Those are both excellent memes to yes, steal. Yes. <laughs> but there was. I want it's, it's. I'm happy when I'm, when I like and I share a meme and I find out it's being shared by everybody else. I I want those links to. Start well, up. I mean that that that's the purpose <laughs> of memes is to be shared, and and enjoyed yeah. and laughed at and shared again until it actually uh, outstrips the unfortunate pandemic we're dealing with right now. Found myself briefly thinking how our conversation got this way and realized that literally the entire time we got to this point and how we wound up talking about all about Star Trek is all because of Alice Eve and her really uncomfortable looking underwear. Mm. <laughs> what? Which, by the way, for anybody listening, I want to point out that I have seen Alice Eve in lots of other things, and she is actually a genuinely great actress who deserves a far better career than it looked like she's had so far. And I blame that on her agent being put in unceremoniously being put into Star Trek Into Darkness and one of the most useless roles in, a sh- in any TV show or movie I've ever seen. Like you could take remove her character entirely. And it would change nothing uh, in terms of the plot or story <laughs> development. And to make it even worse, that really, really horrible underwear scene makes it seem like the entire reason she's there is just so J.J. Abrams could do that scene. Mm, probably not wrong. But, uh... Yeah. Well, I, I have a weird love-hate relationship with J.J. Abrams, and not the reason I think a lot of geeks do right now. It, it's he's one of those guys for every like awesome thing he does, he s- seems to want to taint it with something that's on the opposite end of the spectrum at the same hmm. time. So, so let's make this the uh, what I'm going to suggest we speak of now. We'll make this the final part of this bonus episode. What I wanted to now, two bonus episodes. Oh, no, this is going to be a one bonus episode. Um, so, okay, keep going. Go. So we were talking about TV Star Trek, and then the new J.J. Abrams movie Star Trek. I'm pretty sure I'd seen you, you and uh, J.M. Midnight have a Facebook discussion about this, but uh, women I do not talk anymore for personal reasons. But I'm sure we've had several. Ah. Um, he is definitely in the Kelvin timeline. Star Trek is not real Star Trek camp. I actually entirely disagree with that. And since then, I had, like I said, binged the entire franchise, and I still disagree with right. it. Uh, it's not. It's it's is very much Star Trek. It's even if you're just trying to say it's a quality thing, it's not even the worst thing Star Trek has done by a long shot. Um, if you want to say Star Trek Into Darkness is a Star Trek, it's hard for me to argue with you with that. I like that more as just a piece of dumb, fun entertainment than I do as Star Trek. Okay, so so hold your thought there. That's kind of what I was getting to. mm -hmm. Um, So this last segment, let's talk about how Abrams turned Star Trek from a a deep-thinking kind of issue based like is data a real person or is he just property of starfleet kind of thing to the well that to the that goes right into what i was saying earlier when i said that that kelvin stuff still is star trek because he did it it was always there 
it was actually in the original concept for Star Trek. If, J- if Gene Roddenberry had his way, Star Trek would have always looked like Star Trek 2009. And though I'm not going to pretend Star Trek 2009 is the most intelligent Star Trek story ever made, it isn't dumb. And it is not, and it is no dumber than your average episode of the original Star Trek. Hmm. I actually think it's a pretty brilliant way of setting something up so you can take the original characters and do whatever you want to with them without undoing what had been done with them before. I thought that was brilliant. And in my mind, uh, Star Trek 2009 to me is kind of like a pilot movie for potentially more adventures with the original, with a new version of the original crew. If I had my way, Star Trek Into Darkness never would have happened, except maybe those Klingons, because those were the most awesome Klingons ever. Mm. <laughs> but they would have, but Star but what Star Trek Beyond, what Star Trek Beyond is, is what I wanted Star Trek Into Darkness to be. That should have been the second movie, because that is 110% pure Star Trek for the 21st century big budget movie screen crowd. It's, it, it's, Excellent case of having your cake and eating it too. But the character stuff is there. The character dynamics, more importantly, which I thought were done half well at best in the other two Star Trek movies, uh, is there. They are actually exploring issues and really questioning a lot of the merits, a lot of the ups and downs, the merits, the philosophical quandary, for lack of a way to put it, of the Federation and Starfleet within universe when you really start looking at the villain as motivations. That's, the villain's the weakest part of Star Trek Beyond, hmm. sadly. It's, um, and I think I wouldn't have liked the villain at all if it wasn't Idris Elba, because you just needed an excellent actor to be able to pull it off. But I like how the act... But if you watch the movie, you know you realize the villain's argument is that because we're working so hard at peace and trying to avoid conflicts, we can't move on, we can't evolve, we can't get better than we are. And there's a genuine argument to be had there. <laughs> And um, so that's there. And a lot, I actually got into a weird sort of uh, disagreement with someone else about this, but I like how they use the um, Beastie Boys song to take out the large alien force towards the end. Because to me, that's a very, how they did it in context is a very Star Trek-y solution to taking out your enemy. <laughs> You're talking about when they played so Sabotage? I, yeah. Trying to remember the name. Thank you. Yeah, when they played Sabotage, I thought it was a good way of calling back to the 2009 movie, but handling things in a fashion that was kind of modus operandi for Star Trek plot resolutions going all the way back to the original series. Mm. And now, just just uh, just so you know, I haven't seen Star Trek Beyond yet. But oh, you absolutely need to watch Star Trek Beyond. That show, that movie is so good. I'm annoyed that the Kelvin timeline ones. That's the not quite bomb, but it is the one that didn't make the money they wanted to, and that's what's been causing so much trouble in trying to get another one to production after all this time. Because, like, if that had been the follow-up instead of Star Trek Into Darkness, we probably would have had two more of those movies out by now. <laughs> now, um, so my my initial thought for this this last segment was a discussion about the differences between TV Star Trek that we grew up on and then this new action-y comedic and not to say that 
Star Trek we grew up on didn't have comedy because there was that episode where Q gave Data the ability to laugh his ass off, and he did that. And and we also had a lot of action in our old Star Trek too. Yeah, and um, I I have to say Brent Spiner was a very good, very good actor during his time in Star Trek. And his oh, he was great. And his role in Independence Day was brief and sad, to say. <laughs> well, he was fun in that movie yeah. too. Yeah, and so but you're right. We should have had more of him. <laughs> so, and for what I heard, we kind of in a weird way had too much of him in the sequel that I did not nor ever plan to watch. <laughs> oh, you talking about uh, Independence Day Resurgence or whatever? Yeah. I think I did watch that, yeah, but I was drunk at the time so i don't remember although i don't sounds like the best way to watch it i, I don't know <laughs> how he could have reprised his role because the alien choked him to death oh there was a weird they said he was just in a coma or something i don't know i don't care i'm not watching plot, it plot ever. armor <laughs> plot armor basically yeah so yeah but but yeah. yeah so um i'm gonna say that as a I guess as a millennial Trekkie, because I fall on the very edge of being millennial. People forget our generation had a name and it wasn't millennial. We were generation Y. Oh, like, why why do we even bother? (laughs) No, as in, we're what came after Gen X. Right. So, So, like, we grew up with the, you know, the Star Trek that had it had action, yes. It had the very bad martial arts, the the, <laughs> the double fisted, smack them on the shoulder and they fall down, kind of thing. And even even when Worf brought Klingon martial arts into it, there still wasn't a lot of good action at, at, that I would say because I'm I'm that guy that if you like. If you like violence, destruction, and joint manipulation, talk to me. But, (laughs) you know, it still had good action, but the core of TV Star Trek was the issues. You know, like the the Native Americans that left Earth. Oh, let's not bring up Native Americans in Star Trek. Star Trek did them very, very wrong. I think more measure of a man. And you're talking about data, right? Yeah, the episode Measure of a Man, where Picard had to prove legally that Data was a sentient being and not just a piece of Federation equipment. And that's when, and that's where uh, Riker had to take the prosecutorial end of it. Yeah, with that, which is like that's actually one of my favorite Riker episodes too, right there. And it's one of the signs of how genuinely good are a actor jonathan frakes is yeah because i thought it was a i thought it was a great internal conflict for the character that in order to do the most to help his friend he had to do the most to hurt his friend yeah and 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 i'm sure we can both agree that that dick bag of a scientist can rot in hell oh you find out what happens to him at picard oh wonderful so I might, have... and you're actually going to feel very sorry for him. Remember, him and Data became friends before the end of TNG. 
Mm. Yeah, there's an episode. I've slept. I want to say it's called Data's Day, but I don't remember. But it's the whole episode is basically a TNG adventure from Data's point of view, where the narration is the letter he is writing to that scientist. Uh because he's actually still helping the scientist out with his project. Because Dana's problem isn't that this guy wants to make more androids or anything, or more synthetic life. His problem is that he, the guy wanted to dismantle Data to make it. And by the end, and by the, even by the end of that episode, even though the dude was still a total prick, yeah. he's, the guy was still forced to acknowledge that, you're right, I let my ambition get in the way of the fact that you are a genuinely sentient being. And kind of like, one of the ways, how far the reason Picard wins the argument is because he kind of forces the guy to come to terms with the fact that he always knew that he was just trying to ignore it so he can make this quantum leap ahead in his technology and his practices. Mm, right. Right. Yeah. And I get what you're saying. There was like um, a big, a much more, it's more intellectual, political, social, intellectual, definitely. And um, dialogue heavy Star Trek that we're used to. And that started way back with TOS. Uh, what I think a lot of hardcore TOS fans keep missing or at least they're not, or they just don't look into things deeply as I do, is that a lot of that was more out of necessity than need. There was always going to be those deep issues that he wanted to look into, but it's also how we wound up with B-plots as a traditional thing in Star Trek, was because Gene found out the hard way that in television, you can't have tons of action scenes and stuff like that when you need so many special effects to do them. So he had to make a dialogue heavy to make up for the fact that he can't have a gunfight every episode. Back then. (laughs) Out there to the budget. That being said, uh, when it comes to the TV Star Trek, like I would say going back to the Kelvin timeline stuff, that was kind of like straddling the line and how far, how good a job it did staying on the line was completely dependent on which one of the Kelvin timeline movies you're going. Whereas I feel like Star Trek Discovery was them learning all the wrong lessons from those movies and applying them to TV. Hmm. And... Um, my issue with it is never that there's action in it, or even that there's a lot more action in it than there was in the old Star Trek. That's not a bad thing. The thing is, the action scenes never feel like they have the weight, the dramatic weight behind them that the old action scenes did. Like, I think one of the most exciting action movies of all time is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and there are very few action scenes in it. But the reason why the action scenes are so great, and I can watch them over and over and over again and never get bored, is because a lot of thought and care is put into both the relationship and the philosophical differences between Captain Kirk and Khan Nudi and Singh. Hmm. And there's, and it's a perfect representation of this actual philosophical battle that character battle that these two people are having. And that's missing from discovery. Uh, discovery is one of those shows that pats itself on the back for being smarter than it actually is. Hmm. And <laughs> they make a ton of like, First of all, to make something clear, the second season, I haven't finished it yet. I'm about halfway through it, but it's already better than the first season. Um, partially because the first season put way too much focus on the main character, Michael Burnham. And already I felt like they made the first mistake, which is like, if, you, if you're going to do a Star Trek show, you need to acknowledge you're dealing with an ensemble. And they don't. <laughs> they purposely try to make sure you know that she's the main character and no one can have a solution unless she's the one who, who solves the problem. I mean, this is the thing that made everybody hate Wesley back in mm. the next generation. Because <laughs> for the first few episodes, the whiny kid was solving all the problems. And for some weird reason, Gene Roddenberry couldn't see how 
freaking corny and stupid that was. And the truth of the matter is, it doesn't matter if it's a whiny kid or not. Anytime all problems are being solved by one character with little or no contribution from the rest of your whole crew, mm. that's just bad writing. Right. And on top of that, they made her the least interesting and most frustrating character in the show. And, you know, while surrounding her with far more interesting characters that they never do anything with, even when they set up really good dynamics. And um, they also have what I think of as the Janeway problem, which for those, uh, for clarity, I actually, my issues with Captain Janeway is not Kate Mulgrew's performance. I think the fact that she was able to somehow create a sense of consistency with that character shows how excellent an actress she is right there on Patrick Stewart's level. And mm -hmm. some of the best acting in all of Star Trek came from her. But that was one of the that was the second worst written captain in all of Star Trek. And Who's in my mind, she was Yeah. Oh, hands down, um, Archer, Captain Archer in the first two seasons of Enterprise. That dude was insane. <laughs> really? <laughs> that yeah, he felt like like once they started the Zindi plot line uh, in season three, he started acting like an actual captain. But before that, especially if you're watching all the episodes back to back, it feels like they gave they gave their very first warp capable starship to a hobo who has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> and I think I told you this. My theory, uh, what got me through watching um, Enterprise, at least long to get me to season three where stuff starts to get good, was my theory is that Captain Archer is not actually, um, I forget the actor's name, but he's, he's what it is Bacula. that he's actually, yeah, it, it's, it doesn't actually look like Scott Bakula. That is actually Sam in Captain Archer's body. Who no longer, <laughs> who, if you've seen the end of Quantum Leap, you know he doesn't have Al with him anymore. So he is literally all of a sudden charged with a starship with no freaking clue what the hell he's supposed to be doing and using the bare minimum of knowledge of the future time period that he's in that he has no part of. And, it ex and it's the best way to explain all of the incredibly batshit insane decisions he makes for those first two seasons of that show. Because <laughs> it's like, he's not an idiot. He just has no idea what he's doing. Right. Now, let me ask you, because when I watched... The oh, oh, wait, wait. To start with me saying the Janeway problem. What I mean with the yeah. Janeway problem is... Um, the writing of uh, is, is when the writing is basically failing the character because you're taking what you see as elements of um, competency or intelligence and putting them into your story without understanding why those things work when they work. And the end result is your character coming off as incredibly stupid, incredibly incompetent, and even mean-spirited, but your writing is trying to play it off like these are all good qualities. Going back to what I meant with the Janeway problem. Okay. Yeah, I guess I can see that. It's a failure of writing, not of character, basically. Right. So, um, on the final episode of Enterprise, when I see Riker in the fucking mess hall as the cook... I'm going to let you know now, I'm one of those Trekkies. I do not consider that the final episode. I consider that for lack of a better term, a really bad bonus episode you can completely ignore, and the episode just before that with RoboCop, that's the real last episode. <laughs> mm. eh, well, you know. Also, to, to, by the... To each their own. Yeah, but also by the end of the series, um, I forgot his name, because it's been so long since watching the show, but Trip? Catfish Boy. The seven, yeah, Trip was my favorite character 
Like yeah. it's funny when the show started. Spoilers, spy spoilers, spoilers ahead if you haven't watched Enterprise. Uh, um, yeah. I I I deeply enjoyed the character arc of Trip from being xenophobic to actually f- fucking the hot Klingon or the hot Vulcan. Yeah. Um, for me, it wasn't necessarily a character arc on purpose. My problem was Trip was like. This is going to sound really weird. I didn't like Trip until the third season when they gave him that story arc involving the death of his sister, and he became an actual character. Before that, I actually saw the character as racist. And I don't mean him as a character as racist. It's like, you know, we live in North Carolina. A lot of my friends are good old boys from the Deep South and all that. And this dude just felt like the black... And it's like, what blackface is to black people, that's what this character felt like to all my old good old boy friends. <laughs> he's he's just a series of stereotypes of what it means to be the dumb southern bumpkin. That in reality, there's very there are very few true dumb southern bumpkins, and even the ones you find act nothing like Hollywood's idea of the dumb southern bumpkin. So I really hated mm. that character because he just felt like an insult to all of my friend, all my good old boy friends, you know. And um, it wasn't until season three when they actually started writing him as a character who's also who's from the south. Instead of writing them as some friggin' East LA guy's idea of what a friggin' Southerner is, <laughs> that I actually started liking the character. Yeah, and and I get I get what you're saying, and that's kind of that's why I say I like his character arc because like yeah. those those first couple seasons, he's just like cold as the ice worst. to <laughs> yeah, he's cold as ice to Paul. And He's nowhere near as bad as Archer was. <laughs> really? Yo, yeah, Archer was. Oh, well, horrible yeah, 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 yeah. You're right because she was the the Vulcan um, puppet master, you know, trying to. And she wasn't even really a puppet. Well, it's funny when uh, I watch those shows. I get what the writers were trying to do, and they just failed miserably. Because when you get right down to it, Tapol is the only one who's actually got experience and knows about the things they're talking about but nobody ever listens to her there are times the writers have her withholding information for no good reason whatsoever and i don't mean like big government secrets or anything like that i mean little things like yeah i know exactly what that thing is and i'm just like well if you just explain to them why that is and why they shouldn't stop and look at it they probably won't feel such a need to stop and look at it but she never does. She just acts like they're morons for already knowing what it is, even though she knows why they don't know what it always is. And they're like, we're going to look at it anyway. Which, ironically enough, despite the, what I, the setup I just made, is that makes Archer look like an asshole because they make it very clear he's not doing it because they don't know anything about the thing he decided to look at. He's doing it just because he likes defying her. <laughs> you know? So oh, right. I often... I often said that I could, um, for the first two seasons, the almost every, you could almost map out the opening of almost like the um, the teaser of almost every Enterprise as, hey Captain, there's a thing over there, huh? Let's go have look we at ever the- seen that thing before? Nope, I've never seen that thing before. My people have seen that thing before. It is nothing interesting. This is all. This is all it is. That is the thing, huh? Well, I don't see why you don't want us to look at that thing because we have seen the thing already, and the thing is boring. Well, I don't think it's boring because you told me it's boring, and now we're going to look at that thing. Hey, Captain, <laughs> it's me from the engine room. My I come along for no reason onto the uh, away team? Of course you can, Trip. Credits. 
<laughs> that is almost every and, opening of Enterprise for the first two seasons. <laughs> and and that's and that's that's a that's one of those things from especially next generation. We need yeah. an away team. Well, well uh, Picard, I'm going. Uh, Riker, you're coming. Doctor, you're coming. Data, you're coming. Jordy, you're coming. I would argue all in the, Federation all the key and, people. Uh, TNG, it's different. It's more fluid. Usually a scene like that happens after they've done the opening credits or it's um, interrupted halfway for the opening credit stinger. A lot of episodes of TNG actually started with them just doing something normal somewhere else on the ship. Like the poker games, one of the well, many uh, yeah. jazz costume strikers doing. Yeah, I see. Um, what you're but I'm I'm talking about like when when the away team is assembled, it's all the key fucking people. It's yeah. the captain, the first officer, the doctor, the chief engineer, the android, and then the red well, shirt that gets killed. My favorite red shirt of all time is um, the black guy. In the episode that Tasha Yard dies. Oh, is that the one where he's what he's at the helm and he just starts seizing yeah. and shit? No, no, no. That's a whole other episode. That's after the death of Tasha Yard. That's during yeah. second season when the doctor was uh, what's her name instead of Crusher. Um, no, the Tasha Yard was killed by the um, Tar monster, and a lot of people forget what the whole episode happens is. And I'm not going to lie, but the reason he's my favorite redshirt is entirely because of a joke from SF Debris that I'm going to repeat a little bit. But the setup for that episode is that Deanna Troy was on a shuttle for some kind of seminar or something, and the, somehow the tar creature intercepted the shuttle on the way back. And so she's alive in the shuttle, and the black guy who's the helmsman is just unconscious for the whole episode. And um, they're rushing to get in there so they can get Troy back and save their conscious helmsman. There was, like, another person, I think, on the shuttle, but that dude was, like, killed instantly. Um, and uh, the joke that SF Debris made was then was when uh, Troy is the only – who has no medical experience, obviously, has to try to determine what's wrong with the guy at the helmsman. She's like, I'm not sure why he's upset. And SF Debris was like, that's because he's a black guy wearing a red shirt – on a Star Trek series, and yet the one person who gets killed is the blonde-haired, blue-eyed name actor from the opening credits. Who's <laughs> mm. he? Mm. Just he's not sick. He just fainted out of shock. <laughs> you mean it wasn't me? <sighs> yeah, I mean, in his defense, honestly, considering like all like for those who don't know. The 80s is basically where the black guy dies first trope came from. Yeah, and if I was a self-aware black guy in his position, I'd faint from shock, too. (laughs) Like, wait, I didn't die? (sighs) Not only did I not die, you killed one of the opening credit characters and the only one that did a Playboy shoot. (laughs) Well, that deserves extra faintiness. Yeah. <laughs> it's I'm trying to remember I think this was right before um Denise Crosby is the actress's name played Tasha Yar. I think this was right before she did Pet Cemetery. You're talking about the original Pet Cemetery? Oh yeah, no 
people do not watch the new pet cemetery avoid that thing like the plague that it is it is one of the worst things i've ever seen in a theater <laughs> yeah also don't watch the dark tower movie because it's fucking oh, nothing like the book no god not... <laughs> it, it's, it's nothing like the book is the least of that movie's sins i feel so sorry for matthew mcconaughey who, in my opinion, had one of the best villains in all of literature and the screenplays today. Never trust Akiva Goldsman with any, like, what they call genre fiction adaptations. This guy actually admitted that his Batman, he doesn't feel like his Batman scripts were that good because he couldn't understand the character. And I'm like, how do you not understand? How the fuck do you not understand Batman? Exactly. It's like one of the easiest characters in all of the literature to understand. Six-year-olds get Batman. (laughs) (laughs) My my parents died. I must kill. I must beat up everything that commits crime. Yeah, I mean it's not. But but, and as as someone who owns all seven Dark Tower books, I eight. I'm I'm glad I didn't pay money to see it. I'm just gonna put it that way. Yeah, I can't say I've read them all, but I do have all of the books. And both of the Marvel Omnibus collections that they've done so far of the comic adaptations. So I am not now, familiar with Dark Tower. You literally only need to read like the first chapter of one of those books to instantly understand why that movie is wrong just looking at the trailer. In fact, I know well, people yeah. who know nothing about Dark Tower that looked at the trailer and instantly turned to me and just went, that's not even remotely what the book is like, is it? <laughs> I mean, you only need to read the first chapter of the Gunslinger to understand yeah. that's well. That's what not... I'm saying. They they messed up yeah. adapting it so bad that even people who know nothing about the source material could tell it is not appropriately handling the source material. <laughs> like, now, going off of what you had you had said previously, McConaughey could have been an awesome man in black. Oh, yeah, and I remember at the time the rumor mill was saying that he was going to play Randall Flagg in um, the film adaptation of The Stand, which... Another any... one? Yeah. Well, yeah, they were going to do. They were gonna break it up into three movies. You know, what you should do with The Stand. <laughs> and anybody who knows, who's familiar with the, um, the King literary universe <laughs> understands why you would have Matthew McConaughey cast in both roles. <laughs> yeah, because... Both the same, essentially both the same character. Yeah, well, they, they are the same character. And he's also the same, you learn the origin of that character if you read the fantasy novel Eye of the Dragon. I know a lot of Stephen King lore for a person who's only read a handful of Stephen King books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is not one of my favorite yeah. authors. Let me put um, it to you this I way. Will... He's one of those yeah, guys I would never... I, don't feel the need to rush to get any of his newer books or novels, but if I found out he was doing a TED Talk, I'm there. <laughs> I I actually have the audible version of his book on writing, which is uh, nonfiction, and he talks about his method, and it goes through like a lot of his backstory and how he created some of his most iconic books, like Carrie, specifically Carrie. Yeah. Like, Does it have that was, phrase of his that I don't entirely agree with, but I still love, where he says every character has a backstory and all of them are boring? <laughs> um, 
I don't know, I'd have to listen to it again, but like the the entire inspiration for Carrie. He was a janitor at a high school. He was in the girls' bathroom and he saw the tampon dispenser and he was like, What the hell is that? And the other janitor was like, That's the tampon dispenser for girls. And that was the inspiration for Carrie. <laughs> so the whole the whole part where all the girls are throwing tampons at Carrie shouting, plug it up, plug it up, came from that. Yeah, that's why I hate it whenever somebody asks a writer, where do you get all your ideas from? It's the, it's the dumbest fucking question. And anytime somebody asks that question, I just kind of want to tap them on the shoulder and say, you're not a writer, don't try to be. Because <laughs> if you have to ask that question, <laughs> then you can't be a writer, period. Because the reality is... Your ideas come from everywhere. <laughs> the smallest, most insignificant thing can wind up leading to you creating an entire universe. Likewise, uh, the biggest, most obvious thing will give you nothing. <laughs> you know, the truth is, yeah. what makes you what you're you don't get your ideas from something. It's just your brain imprints itself on some concept, idea, or some vague other thing, and turns it into something that few, if any, other people could possibly come up with, and you go from there. Um, it, yeah, so just another piece of advice among the other creative advices I have given is if you if you're if you want to be a writer, then you should never be asking that question. <laughs> mm. Indeed, kind of like uh, I want to say two days ago in the sprint group chat when I was like, I have an idea, and you were like, I'm glad you said it that way because if you hadn't. I would have said you were naive. <laughs> I was like, well, I was naive until I realized that a story is a living thing as long as you feed it words. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're talking about how you voice it. I remember that vaguely now. I'm hoping I didn't make my friend Isaac too upset either when he said what the uh, story he wrote was. And I was just like, it really, like, my immediate thought, and I actually put it up there, was just like, you wrote a Rick and Morty episode? It really sounded like a Rick and Morty episode. <laughs> Well, and and I put the gif of the giant head saying, "Show me what you got," because yeah. you know I I I got what you were saying, but it what what his idea was was kind of kind of totally different, and from what he had put, it sounds interesting. Yeah. No, I would happily read the story. It's like I'm just really bad about not putting up my immediate thoughts, uh, but my um. Mm. He's one. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, we he, we met through work and became really good friends through that. He's one of those people I love to disagree with because how can I put this? We have the same general opinions about everything, like Marvel movies and stuff like that. But we have like different opinions about the specifics of <laughs> And mm -hmm. I have a relationship with him that's like, um, you know how when you're in your twenties and you're first dating and going around, we all have that friend who's a total douchebag who thinks that all that matters is whether or not him and you get laid. And it never occurs to him that you might want something more substantial or anything like that. So he's kind of acting like your Obi-Wan Kenobi for your dick. <laughs> it, it's like, that's the kind of relationship I have with him, except instead of trying to get him laid, it's me trying to get him to understand fiction and storytelling in a way. Help me, Obi Dick Kenobi. You're my only hope. I think I remember that porno. <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> or help me, Obi Word Kenobi. You're my only hope. <laughs> Jody, come here. 
Right. <laughs> Funny enough, I have a friend who uh, has been coming on the podcast. Uh, we call him Chewy, and he actually does a really good Wookiee impression. I believe it. I'm not the best at Wookiee, sadly. <laughs> That's really good. Well, I mean, considering I'm half Wookiee, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm I'm white but half Wookiee at the same time. So, summer summer is the worst time of the year. Yeah, for you're me. a southerner. <laughs> <laughs> no, is the worst time of the year for me because I'm half Wookiee. No, I'm saying that, that's what I'm saying. But I've yet to be. Are all southerners half Wookiee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I guess you're you're not wrong. <laughs> I've seen how long your hair but, uh, and beards get. <laughs> yeah, but you haven't seen how long my chesticle hair is. I think I have a pretty good guess. I've seen more than enough uh, Southern boys. That's why I laugh at ZZ Top. <laughs> in pop music, that may be an interesting look. Here in the South, that's just a look. <laughs> mm. We All right, so... Let us wind this down with final thoughts for this bonus episode. All right. Star Trek is awesome, but don't watch Star Trek Into Darkness unless you want to be insulted by women's underwear. Or unless you want to see a chick in her, I guess, uncomfortable green underpants. Yeah, seriously. I don't even have the body parts that that was clearly pressing and cutting into, and I still was uncomfortable looking at it. It's... Like I said before, if you're a perv who just wants to see Alice's body, she was doing nudity before that movie even came out. You could find it. If you're like me and you like an act, and you want to appreciate an actor or for their talent, watch the second season of um, Jessica Jones. She's in that as Typhoid Mary, and she's amazing. And if you like, she is. Yeah. God, I've slept and drank so much since yeah. then. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. And you know. <laughs> oh wait, no, wait. She. She's the friend, isn't no, she? No, no, no. That's the actress looks very, very similar to her, and she's also a British actress. But no, she's only in the second season. Uh, I think she has. She's either wearing a wig or has her hair dyed brown or like brownish for that season. And she plays uh, the character in the comics known as Typhoid Mary. Yeah, okay. that's, there's yeah. a lot of reasons like right, I so. hate that character in Into Darkness because like not only is she completely unnecessary, but nothing about her makes sense. Like, I'm trying to figure out why she's British, but, like, Admiral Robocop is her dad, who's very American, which is made even more baffling because the actress does a perfect American accent because she spent her teen years growing up in Los Angeles. So her her American mm. accent is as flawless as James Marster's British accent. You know, the guy who's so British, people are surprised. The guy who does it so well, people are surprised when they find out he's an American. So there was literally no reason for that character mm. to be British. I'm right. Okay, so off on a tangent, back on to final <laughs> back on to final thoughts, because it's almost midnight and I should probably go yeah. to bed since I'm out of I know, here. I guess with everything I talked about, uh, you don't get rich from writing, you get rich from selling out. <laughs> Never ask a writer where their ideas come from. Mm. Star Trek hmm. maybe maybe flawed right now, but it's far from dead and it's not necessarily going down a, a bad path, especially Watch Picard. Star Trek Picard is awesome. Star Trek Beyond is awesome. The rest you can take it <laughs> of the newer Star Trek. And also read the Dynamite comics because the 
comic books, especially those with the Kelvin Timeline crew, are some of the best Star Trek I've ever come across. I am not kidding. I say that completely unironically. I'm surprised how good, because I'm guessing, David, you remember from the old days what tie-in comics are like. <laughs> so the idea that mm, crossovers like and- just tie-in comics in general, like the very old school, late 70s to early 80s, like um, Star Wars comics, they're both adaptations of the movies, but they also try to do stuff between the movies without knowing what's going on in the movies or when they would do a tie-in comic to a cartoon or TV show or something like that. They were always some of the worst freaking comics ever. So it's amazing that Dynamite mm. Entertainment is actually creating, in my opinion, some of the best comics out there today with their Star Trek properties. Yeah. Gotcha. And also, yeah. as a final note, yeah. if you want to get into novels, read New Frontier. That's a cast and crew made entirely just for the novels, written by, Peter, by the Incredible Hulk comics Peter David, and they are awesome and amazing. Mackenzie Calhoun is one of my, is hands down one of the best captains you don't know about. Okay, cool, cool. So let me ask you, what do you think about what do you think about this last two and a half hours we've spent talking? Did you oh, enjoy yeah. it? I love talking about the geek stuff. Would you like to? be a recurring guest on bonus episodes and or uh, the actual podcast. Now I will give you the caveat that we are a lot more raunchy, me especially, a lot more raunchy on the actual podcast than this bartender. So your your thoughts? Would you like to be a recurring? Well, let's guest? just say while I'm on quarantine, I'm not doing anything else. So let's go ahead. Just give me the topic and go with it. <laughs> gotcha. So on that note, I will conclude this bonus episode of gaming sessions and everything under the sun. <laughs> Everybody out there, um, if you are like Evan under quarantine. Um, you know, do, do your do what you need. Uh, well, you know, you know, I'm I'm an essential worker, so I I've been out there doing the stuff and things, and you know, washing my hands. I've got hand sanitizer <laughs> everywhere. But uh, you know, on that note, you know, everybody be safe. Keep your keep your distance from people. Wash your hands. Wash your goddamn don't hands. Don't forget about the prime directive. This could be stopped. Indeed. Do not interfere with primitive cultures. God knows they're out there in droves right now. And you can. <laughs> well, I was going to say you can take that however you see fit. Because, yeah. And that was a not so thinly veiled political remark. And yeah. that's okay. You'll know if you see me out there. My but, face uh, mask has Star Trek all over it. And, and so, good point. Um, instead of shaking hands, you can always give the live long and prosper. Vulcans doing social distancing decades before it was cool. Well, decades after us. Or it could be before us. I mean, they're long-lived and shit. But anyways, so yes. Everybody have a good night. Um, look for the... Uh, next episode, it will be episode 20. Uh, we'll, we should be recording it tomorrow. Um, 
and 